The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Joe Rogan. How are you? I'm great, man. It's great to finally make your acquaintance, digitally at least. Yeah, yeah. We've been trying for a while, I like before the pandemic. Um, so I'm glad we're at least finally able to do this version of it. Yeah, I hope we do it in person eventually. That would be nice. For sure. What yeah. is it like down in Brazil? In general or no, I've, I've been to Brazil. that's going on? In ge- yeah. Like right now. I've been to Brazil multiple times. I love it down there. Yeah, I mean, so obviously it's a, a fraught situation politically because the country in 2018 elected, you know, a genuine fanatic, someone who explicitly – um, prefers the military dictatorship that ruled the country until 1985 as opposed to democracy, which succeeded it, Jair Bolsonaro. Um, and then beyond that, uh, the coronavirus has hit this country almost harder than any other, probably just right after the United States, but because of extreme poverty here and income inequality, um, you could probably make the case that it's hit this country harder than any other. Um, so politically, in terms of the pandemic, and then of course economically, things are pretty bleak. But at the same time, Brazil, which is what made me fall in love with it in the first place, is always this country, as you know, if you visited, so bursting full of vibrancy and energy and potential and uniqueness that I'm always kind of optimistic about it, no matter how grim things seem to be. They're very, very friendly people. I really love it down there. It's I, I, I first went there in 2003 for the uh, Abu Dhabi uh, World Jiu-Jitsu Championships. And so... Uh, right. Yeah, because I guess you're, the fighting that you like is super popular here, right? There are a lot of Brazilian oh, yeah. MMA fighters. And, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the original UFC fighter was uh, Hoist Gracie, who's a, a member of the famous Gracie clan that came out of rio so uh i've yeah i've been going there for 17 years i really do love it down there yeah you know it's funny the it is i mean it's a culture as you say where things are where the people are super nice and before i lived here i lived in you know manhattan where i lived and worked which is pretty much the exact polar opposite of brazil in terms of the mentality of the people I remember, you know, I used to come to Rio when I first started coming here. You would go to the grocery store or the supermarket and there'd be a line of like eight people and the people in line would just stop and chat with the cashier, you know, for like three minutes. And I would like be ready to have an aneurysm because I'd come from Manhattan (laughs) where, you know, if like you're behind somebody in the ATM line and they like accidentally put a wrong button or the wrong password, you want to murder them for wasting four seconds of your life. And then after a while, you know, I started realizing, look, if I'm going to live here, I need to accept that kind of cultural vibe. And it really just taught me a lot about the need not to have to maximize the utility of every moment. Yeah, I have a friend who moved down there from Los Angeles uh, to do jujitsu. And he said the first thing you have to accept is that you're on Brazil time. They are just so late. If you need anything to get done, if you need a plumber and he's supposed to be there at 10, he might not be there till one. And when he's there, he's going to be yeah. real casual about it. And it might not get done for weeks and weeks, something that you can get done in L.A. in a couple of hours. It's just it is what it is. You just got to accept it. They're just more laid back. They're, they're, they're not in a rush. Yeah, I, I've asked many people, many Brazilians here, why do you bother having the word for fast in Portuguese since it applies <laughs> to nothing? 
And yeah, it's true. Um, and you can, you know, decide that that's what you hate about it. For me, just the complete lack of organization or urgency in terms of time is one of the things I love about it. Um, so being there and you were there living there when you broke the Snowden interview, the Snowden. Case. Yeah, I've been living here right since 2005. So the Snowden story was 2013. Did that. Did did you feel this is what I've always wanted to ask you about this? Did you feel physically in danger when that was happening? Because that was such a, a gigantic moment and so terrifying for most Americans that we're now sure that the government had access to our emails and our phone records and, and it was all broken by by you and Snowden. And I wondered like were were you worried for your, your safety? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for one thing, you know, at the time we were living in a part of Rio that was very isolated. We were living literally on a mountain in the middle of the woods. And, you know, I had with me at all times physically on my person 14 or 15 thumb drives that contained hundreds of thousands, if not more. I've never quantified it on purpose. You know, of the most sensitive documents possessed by the most powerful government on the planet, the most secretive agency within that government. And I would carry them on my person at all times. You know, I would go to the supermarket and just start laughing because on my back would be a backpack filled with, you know, top secret CIA and as NSA documents. And obviously there were a lot of people who wanted to get their hands on those documents, not just the US government to take them back, though they realized at some point that that would be impossible. But other governments, um, non-government actors. But then on top of that, you know, every story that we were doing was affecting markets. It was affecting diplomatic relations. So there was obviously a big, big interest in a lot of intelligence agencies around the world and what I was doing. And, you know, felt monitored all the time um, because I was, you know, not like the kind of paranoid feeling of monitoring, but the actual being monitored is, has been confirmed by in a lot of different ways. Um, but, you know, the biggest concern at the time was that the U.S. government, being the U.S. government, got very bullying and very threatening and was explicitly and implicitly both in public and private, making clear that if I left Brazil there was a good chance that they would try and arrest me. I mean, remember how extreme they were with Snowden. They brought down the plane of the president of Bolivia when he was coming back from Moscow on the just suspicion that he might have been taking Snowden with him, and he, of course he wasn't, but that's how extreme they were. So I had to, I stayed in Brazil for about 10 months and didn't feel safe leaving. The Justice Department was telling my lawyers, if he leaves and shows up at any airport, we're going to arrest him. And the Brazilian government was super protective of, of us because a lot of that Snowden reporting revealed how the NSA and the UK and Canada were spying on Brazilian institutions, Brazilian oil companies, the president of Brazil, Dilma, Dilma Rousseff, the population. So in Brazil, this reporting was looked at very favorably. And so the government, the Senate offered a lot of protection. So I just felt very safe in Brazil and very unsafe elsewhere. Well, it's very nice that you felt safe in Brazil. It's very nice that they were, uh, were protecting you. Um, do they have a history of monitoring their people the same way the United States does? Well, so, you know, as I referenced earlier, um, the history of Brazil, the recent political history is a really dark one, but relevant to the U.S. In, 19, for the, in the 1950s, early 1960s, they were building the first really vibrant democracy in Latin America. 
and they were steadfastly attempting to remain neutral in the endless Soviet Union-U.S. Cold War. But in 1963, 1964, they had this kind of center-left president that the U.S. thought was becoming a little too close to Moscow, a little bit too socialist. He, you know, nothing communist, but just very kind of mild reforms like rent control and uh, land reform and some nationalization of companies to try and assuage the really brutal income inequality that has plagued the country forever. And so the U.S. government, first under John Kennedy and then under Lyndon Johnson, worked with right-wing Brazilian generals to overthrow that democratically elected government violently, and they imposed a military dictatorship for the next 21 years, of which the current Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, was a part as an army captain. And those are really dark days. You know, dissidents were murdered, journalists were killed and exiled. Um, Everybody was spied upon with the help of the CIA and MI5 and MI6 in the UK. And so a lot of that kind of endures, that relationship between the CIA and, and the Brazilian government. But since 1985, when it democratized, it's kind of re, it's become once again a model of a liberal democracy. So no, I don't, no government in the world is as obsessed with spying on the world like the US is. Um, but yeah, there's a pretty dark underbelly, like there is in any major country in Brazil, of kind of like a deep state or an intelligence community, whatever you want to call it, that definitely, you know, uses the dark arts to maintain control over the population. When you hit send, when you finally released, when you when you put that story out, what was the feeling like? Was there ever a, oh shit, what have I done moment? No, there's probably should have been. And if I were like <laughs> healthier from a mental health perspective, there would have been a bigger <laughs> one of those. But you know, it was we were I was in Hong Kong first of all you know we had flown there to meet to meet Snowden um, and I wasn't sleeping at all I mean obviously I knew it was you know going to be one of the biggest stories of of that generation if not the biggest um, and I had spent years Joe you know like writing about the NSA and you know kind of trying to warn people that it seemed like it was being a lot more invasive and a lot more aggressive about monitoring our private communications and our private activities domestically than either the law permitted or anyone knew. But it was very difficult to sound an alarm because everything was done behind a wall of secrecy. And so when I finally got these documents in my hand, you know, it was like the dream, right? It's why you go into journalism, but especially for me to be able to show the world that everything was so much more extreme than even I thought that I just wanted to get them out in the world as soon as possible. Like any delay at all on the part of The Guardian, which was the newspaper with which I was working at the time and reporting, you know, drove me into a rage. Um, I just felt like the world deserved to see these documents. And also, you know, I was so inspired by, by, by Snowden. I mean, you've talked to him, I think twice now. So, you know, like, you know, he's this 29 year old kid at the time who pretty much gambled. We thought 95% likelihood he was going to end up in prison, not for a few years, but for the rest of his life. And like not in a nice prison, but in the kind of prison that you go in when they accuse you of jeopardizing American national security. But he did it because he believed in the cause. Like that was not the bullshit reason, like not the right. movie script reason. Like that was his genuine, which shocked me, right? I kept was this jaded reporter who kept looking for the real motive, but that was it. There was no other motive. And so I just felt like I owed him such a duty and kind of inspired by his example. I thought, you know, if he's willing to go to prison for the rest of his life um, and he chose me to work with him, 
you know, I kind of, the courage kind of became infectious. Um, and we kind of adopted this trench bunker mentality, like we were in this together and we were going to fight everybody. Um, and that became the energy much more, and it kind of drowned out the fears that probably were rational for us to have. I, I felt very honored and very, very fortunate to be able to talk to him. And I, I think he's a very noble person, unusually noble. And you, in long form conversations, if, if there was any hint of something different, I really believe it would have leaked out. He really is that guy. And I think history, when we look upon this case, I mean, the, the documentary was pretty excellent um, that showed all the, the moments leading up to you releasing the story. But I think these conversations with him, I, f I, f I just feel very fortunate to have that platform where he's willing to come on and talk for hours at a time and express his thoughts on uh, just on spying in general, national security issues, and all these situations that he faced uh, up to and now currently because of that. He's it's it's a it's a very it's embarrassing that this is the world that we live in. That this is the country that we live in. That that man who I really genuinely believe is a hero is now a Russian citizen forever. Yeah, I mean, hopefully there's an opportunity um, just because of all the bizarre, vindictive impulses that Trump has and the fact that by complete coincidence, the people who want Snowden to be in Russia forever or to rot in prison happen to be Trump's enemies as well, that I'm hoping there's an opportunity to persuade Trump after the election, particularly if he loses, but even if he doesn't, that he should follow through on what he's now twice bizarrely raised on his own, which was the prospect of pardoning Snowden. It's something that's probably my top priority in the world at the moment. And the reason is, is what you just said, which is, you know, we, we, we're so accustomed to people doing things for uh, just misguided reasons, corrupted reasons, um, people lying, deceiving about why they're doing things, about presenting a false version of who they are. And that's the thing is, you know, you talked to him for those hours. When I got to Hong Kong, you know, before becoming a journalist, I was a litigator in Manhattan and, and I used those skills. You know, I, I mean, I kind of created a little mini Guantanamo where I just like put him in front of me and just questioned him for eight hours straight, three different, you know, three straight days without letting him even have a glass of water or go to the bathroom because I really wanted to know what was actually motivating him. Who was this person to whom I was about to tie myself and my reputation and credibility eternally? And he really is somebody who, you know, and like the thing about it too is like that's so amazing about it is that oftentimes people who leak secrets or who become a source that, you know, wants to expose secrets and are willing to go to prison are often kind of fucked up people, right? They're like alienated from society. Um, they feel persecuted and mistreated. They don't have much going on in their lives and therefore don't feel like they have a lot to risk. Snowden was exactly the opposite. You know, he had at the time this incredibly beautiful and brilliant girlfriend who today is his wife. They had been together for years. And in order to do what he did, he had to deceive her. He had to leave the country and not tell her what he was doing because he wanted to make certain that when the government knocked on her door, she could truthfully say she knew nothing about it because he knew they would go after her if, if, if they could tie her to it. 
Um, he had a great job. He was making a lot of money. You know, he was a high school dropout, but had taught himself these really coveted skills. Um, so he had a great career ahead of him, a mother and a father who both love him, very stable home life. He had none of those traits, you know, that typically are used to demonize people who do this, which is why I knew he was going to be gold from a media perspective and to be able to prevent the government from uh, demonizing him in the way they like to do. But more importantly than that, like leaving aside all the perception stuff and all the PR and media stuff, you know, he's probably the person or one of the people certainly I admire most in this world uh, in all the time I've lived. And what's so unbelievable, you know, people always say to me, oh, poor Snowden, you know, he's trapped in Russia. He can't come home. He's facing multiple felony charges. He's been separated from his, all of which is true. But like, I also always say that he's the person who I know in this world who, when he puts his head down on his pillow at night, he falls asleep most easily. Hmm. Um, because there's something about knowing that you, you face this dangerous choice and you chose the right thing. I mean, in Hong Kong, as I said, we were never, I was never sleeping. My colleague or Poitras was never sleeping. We were sleeping like an hour or two with the aid of very strong sleep narcotics. And, you know, he would say, like, at 9.30, he would yawn. He would say, okay, guys, I think I'm going to hit the hay. Like, he had no care in the world. <laughs> um, and that was, I was like, what the fuck? And he would, like, sleep for eight hours, you know? And he would wake up, have a little coffee. Um, but that's what that, you know, clean conscience does to a person. Even with a clean conscience, I just don't understand the weight of the stress that he was under. How I, I don't understand how he could be so calm. He, he, I mean, he, he didn't have stress. That's what's so bizarre. I mean, you saw in the film, right, in the documentary, yeah. Citizen Four, where, like, you know, if because we, we, we were, we had no idea what the CIA knew. We had no idea what the Chinese government we knew. We had no idea what Hong Kong authorities knew. We were waiting. I was always waiting for the door to be kicked in at any moment, you know, and, and for him, at least, if not the rest of us, you know, me and Laura to be taken away. Um, and, like I said, I mean, our working assumption the whole time was that there was, you know, as excited as I was, the one thing that was kind of a dark cloud that hovered over it all the time was that this person who I had now become connected with and developed an admiration for, I was certain at any moment he was going to be in the hands of the U.S. government. And the next time I would see him would be on television in an orange jumpsuit and shackles in a courtroom getting ready to be sentenced to like 50 years in prison in one of those hell holes that the U.S. specializes in where you spend 23 and a half hours a day alone in your cell um, and you have 30 day, thirty minutes a day where you you know get to walk in a little room in, in the sun to satisfy legal requirements. And that was going to be him for the rest of his life. He got very lucky. I mean, he almost did end up that way. So for me, I was you know concerned for him, stressed for him, and but he was at peace with the fact that that was the path he chose i mean it wasn't like you know and that was really important for me to know that he had thought through all the likely consequences i didn't want to feel like i was using somebody's work product who hadn't given full thought to what it is that they had gotten themselves into and it was only once i became very you know he he could cite the statutes with which they were going to charge him and what the legal defenses that were available were. So he had given extreme thought to this. He's an adult and he made that choice. And it was amazing. To this very day, he's completely at peace with it. It's stunning. Uh, it's, it's also stunning the lack of anger from the American people, the, the apathy 
and the sort of just acceptance that even though it has been deemed illegal what the NSA was doing, that he exposed illegal activity, that they still would punish him if they caught him. And everybody's like, huh, you know. So, like, what is government then? If government is a group of people that are allowed to do something that has absolutely been deemed illegal by the courts, and if you catch them doing this illegal thing and then report it, and everyone agrees that it's wrong, everyone agrees it's unconstitutional, but yet, if they get you, they will still put you in jail. Like, what the fuck is Not government? What is government? Right. Well, not only that, right? Not only is the person who exposes what are crimes, what courts have said are crimes, not only is that person punished as though they've done something wrong, when in reality they're owed the gratitude, right, of the entire country for stopping criminal spying by the government on our population domestically, which was one of the primary preoccupations of the American Revolution. Yes. That was what the founding was about. It was about, you know, the king not being able to send his goons into your house and into your neighborhoods and search through your papers unless they had a, a, a proven reason to do so approved by a court. That's what Snowden demonstrated, told all of us the government was doing to us, not to the terrorists, not to have it to all of us. Yeah. Not only is it that he's been punished for having blown the whistle on criminality when he deserves a parade down Fifth Avenue. What's so much worse is that the people who broke the law haven't paid any price. They're not, they don't have charges against them. Nothing. In fact, they remained in government. The, the thing that made Snowden finally commit the last kind of the straw that broke his, his, his back as, as, it, as, as it were was when James Clapper, President Obama's senior national security official, he ran the entire national security apparatus as the director of uh, national intelligence, went before the Senate and was asked explicitly, does the U.S. government, does the NSA collect dossiers and tons of information on millions of Americans? And he looked at the senator who asked him that and said, no, sir, not wittingly. That's a crime. That's a felony just to lie to the Senate, let alone to do it. And not only was James Clapper never prosecuted, he was never fired. He served out his term as President Obama's senior national security official. And you know where he works now? He works at CNN, disseminating the news to <laughs> the American public after he got caught fucking lying about the most important question he's ever been asked. Um, that's, you know, that's how you know that you live in a country that despite the facade of democracy has gone very very off course you know like the, the one thing that i always think about is like if you if you kind of start from scratch and think about what a healthy government would be in a healthy government um the the population would know everything about what the government is doing right that's just basic transparency we would we need to know what the government is doing with the power the public power we place in their hands with very rare exceptions right like we should know what movements they're planning if they're in a war with troops they have a right to something secret but the overwhelming amount of things they do should be public and transparent and they should know nothing about us right that's why we have a right to privacy we're private citizens they're the public sector that's what the basic foundation of a healthy society would be the united states has completely reversed that not just the u.s but the west generally since we're, since the 9-11 attacks where everything that they do is presumptively secret. We know almost nothing about what they do except what they decide to tell us. Most of what they do is marked classified and secret and hidden. 
Whereas because of the spying apparatus that they've built, they know everything about what we do. They know with whom we communicate. They know what we say. They know where we go. It's completely reversed what a free and healthy society ought to be. And that more than anything is what Snowden exposed. And what's stunning to me is that he's now uh, a citizen of Russia. He, he lives over there. They've accepted him, and they've given him... They've well, he's given not a... Him, he's, still a he's, he's still a U.S. citizen, but he has permanent residence. Permanent residence. So he has, like, a, the equivalent of a green card, but he's still... He's very emphatic that he's still a U.S. citizen and intends always to be. And it's sort of out of the public consciousness. I mean, unless he does an interview with you or with me or with some other publication or something, and then briefly it's in, in the public's eye for a moment, but no one seems to be outraged. It's a small amount of people that seem to be outraged. A small population also that are outraged that Julian Assange, if they do extradite him to America, they plan on putting him in a supermax prison for, again, exposing crime, doing what a journalist is supposed to do. I mean, and everyone's apathetic about it. It's, it's, it's very bizarre, and it speaks to the lack of trust that we have in mainstream media today because they're not up in arms about this. There's, there's no giant pieces on CNN running on a daily basis. This is not something that everybody has got uh, on their news feed on their phone every day, and it, it should be. It really should be, because if you can't expose crime in the government, you don't really have a government. You have a dictatorship that's dressed up like a government. Exactly. And you know what, you know what, you know what is done to, to obscure that fact that you just described accurately? There's like a pretense of dissent, right? So you have CNN or MSNBC or like the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post where people ostensibly express different opinions and have debates and arguments. But they're in extremely constrained ranges of opinion that are permitted, right? Like you're allowed to say the Democrats are good or you're allowed to say the Republicans are bad or vice versa and that's pretty much it. Actual dissidents, people who expose what the government is doing in reality, right? Like not the bullshit, daily, kind of trivial chatter that creates this illusion of the elites fighting with one another, but the actual underbelly of what the US government does in the world. People who criticize that, and especially people who expose to people like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, they're not, they don't have the freedom to be dissidents. They're, the, the, the US government has succeeded in keeping Julian Assange in prison for a year and a half now, there's no chance he's going to get out of a British prison, even if he wins every one of his appeals and, and hearings for at least another two to three years. And if he doesn't, he'll be extradited to the U.S. and go to prison for the rest of his life. And absent a pardon by, by, by Trump, Snowden will be in exile for the rest of his life. And if the U.S. government could get their hands on him, they would put him in the same place that they want to put Julian Assange, because in reality actual dissidents, actual activism against the U.S. government and its power centers is barred and prohibited and punished. That, I mean, that is just the reality of the United States and it is tyrannical. Um, but so many people, and, and like the, the other thing I just want to say is the worst scumbags on all of this, like isn't necessarily the population, right? Like I don't really blame people who, you know, have to go to work and work two jobs and have kids and are barely scraping by, which is the majority of the population, especially now, 
for not thinking much about Edward Snowden or Julian Assange. The co- cases are complicated. There are legal issues involved, and there's huge globs of propaganda to which they're subjected. Um, you know, like one example is, you know, Snowden's in Russia. You know why he's in Russia? Because the U.S. government forced him to be there by invalidating his passport when he tried to leave and by Joe Biden bullying every other country that he applied for asylum with. They trapped him in Russia. He never chose to be there. He was planning on transiting through. And then they used the fact that he's in Russia to say, oh, look, he's a traitor. Otherwise, why would he be in Russia? So there's really effective propaganda. So I don't blame the population. The people I blame are journalists. It is the job of journalists to defend the people who expose the truth. If you don't do that as a journalist, what is your fucking purpose? Why are you a journalist? And not only don't journalists care much about what's being done to Julian Assange or Edward Snowden, most of them, if you actually ask them and talk to them about it, will justify and defend the fact that they ought to be in prison. Because what they really are are servants of the government and not what they pretend to be. So Joe Biden was responsible for blocking his asylum to other countries? Yeah, Joe Biden and John Kerry. I mean, you know, I'm not, it's not like they were uniquely bad. I mean, they were carrying out the, the, the policy of the Obama administration, but it was Joe Biden who took the lead. He, the, one of the first things that he did was when Snowden left Hong Kong, he, the ticket that he had was Moscow, Havana, and then he was going to go to Ecuador where he was going to get asylum. And Joe Biden called the Cuban government and said, if you allow him safe passage, which they had already granted him, you're going to suffer consequences like you've never experienced from the U.S. government before. So they withdrew their safe passage guarantee. Um, and then he applied, you know, to countries like that, that frequently grant asylum to, to whistleblowers like Sweden, Finland, even Germany and France, where there were also a lot of revelations that were looked favor- upon favorably because he was showing that those populations how the NSA was spying on them. And then at the last minute... Um, his lawyers would get a call from the consulate of those countries and say, Joe Biden called and said that they'll start a trade war with us or they'll withdraw from this treaty or they'll do this or that um, if we grant asylum. And I'm sorry, we just can't. When Obama was running, you remember the Hope and Change website? And it, it, I do. It, it expressly talked about, very, very clearly talked about uh, protecting whistleblowers. And this was a big part of what he was running on. What do you think happens when you get in office? You have, I mean, I'm a fan of the way Obama communicates. I'm a fan of what he represents as a president. He was just so, so eloquent and such a great statesman, and everyone had so much hope for what he was going to do once he got into office. But his administration was one of the worst for whistleblowers ever. What do you think happens when you get in there? I mean, do you think... It's like the Bill Hicks bit where they show you a, an angle of the Kennedy assassination that you've never seen before. And then they ask you, are there any questions? You know, like, right. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to be like too, I don't want to be too maximalist in that, in like the conspiracy theorizing, but I'll just give you a quick uh, vignette, like a little anecdote, a little anecdote just to like, introduce my view of this which is in january of 2017 days before trump was inaugurated chuck schumer went on the rachel maddow show you can find this clip it's online it's amazing and trump had been posting a bunch of shocking stuff on twitter mocking the cia for having gotten iraq so wrong which they did 
because he was angry at them because they were essentially leaking against his administration before it even began and were blaming Russia for his election victory, which he felt was delegitimizing him. So he started criticizing the CIA. And, Rachel, and Chuck Schumer went on Rachel Maddow's show and she asked him about it. And he said, morality and ethics aside of doing that, for a hard-nosed businessman like Trump claims to be, you have to be the biggest imbecile in the world to stand up to and challenge and attack the intelligence community because nobody has more weapons to destroy you if you do that than they do. And it was kind of like a throwaway line, but in reality, it was one of the most important and candid admissions of how the government actually works that has ever been broadcast, certainly on that shitty network, but really like on TV ever, because he was essentially saying there's this permanent power faction, which Dwight Eisenhower warned about, you know, in 1961 when he was leaving the presidency, he called it the military industrial complex. But there's this power, this permanent power faction that is much power, more powerful than the officials we elect and who stay in Washington and exert power regardless of the outcome of elections who you can't challenge or impede because they'll destroy you. Um, and so, you know, Obama, despite the lofty rhetoric and like the visionary posturing, which I also don't want to say fell for, but was kind of inspired by in 2007, um, has always been a very shrewd pragmatist. You know, he's always known how from his time at Harvard when he became the, the editor-in-chief of the Law Review, how to appease institutional authority. And so I think when he got into Washington, he, he, he thought to himself, I have these ambitious agenda items like healthcare and other things, and I only can get them done if I'm not going to be provoking the ire of the CIA, which is why, for example, he also said during the campaign he would consider prosecuting the, the people on the CIA who tortured helpless detainees and then quickly said i'm going to give them all immunity because he didn't want to be at war with the cia so i think that's part of it right like when someone like julian assange someone like edward snowden leaks these secrets it's not obama necessarily but it's the cia the Justice department the nsa the fbi demanding saying this is our priority you need to punish these people or we're going to have an endless series of leaks so part of it is just that kind of calculation like a very pragmatic calculation like look i'm i may be president but i'm not actually the only one who wields a lot of power in this town and then i think the other part of it is when you become president you're sitting in that chair and you have like kind of the unprecedented incomparable power of the u.s government at your disposal if you think if you believe too much in your own righteousness, if you believe that you're a benevolent and noble person using that power for benevolent and noble ends, then you start to believe that anyone who stands in your way and is impeding you is somebody who inherently is ill-intentioned or at least engaged in misconduct that ought to be sanctioned and punished. And I think that kind of became part of Obama's worldview too. Like it's one thing to champion whistleblowers when they're exposing George Bush and Dick Cheney's secrets, but when they're exposing Eric Holder and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and John Kerry and Hillary Clinton's secrets, it seems a lot less benevolent to somebody from Obama's, you know, sitting in his place. It is amazing that Schumer would make that statement on, on television. It, it really Have is. you seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, you Jamie. should see it and show it. It's amazing. Jamie just pulled it up right here. Trump being really dumb to fight with intelligence agents. It just seems like he would know better than to say that publicly, specifically to say that publicly on television. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're Chuck Schumer and you're just like a creature who's lived in that sewer for decades <laughs> and barely ever emerges, you know, to like breathe human air, like the, those things that, you know, are just part of your world, so embedded in it that everyone knows, you forget that it's supposed to be hidden, that it's kind of shocking to other people. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Like my husband and I, we rescue dogs. So we have 25 dogs in our house. Whoa. So we go out to dinner and I know exactly. So we go out to dinner and someone will say like, Hey, I know you guys love dogs. How many dogs do you have? And we'll be like, Oh, 25. Like it's the most natural thing in the world. And of course, like every person we say that to thinks we're fucking crazy, right? Like they think <laughs> we're those like cat lady hoarder people right. because we forget that what's so normal to us is actually insane to other people. We have to remind ourselves, like we have to ease them into that. I think that's what happened. Like if you work in Washington, you just, for decades, you just know you don't fuck with the CIA. And he saw Trump doing that because Trump wasn't a creature of Washington and was kind of saying, like, he's being stupid. Well, Trump has such a tremendous ego, too. It doesn't seem like anybody is out of bounds for him. Like, it seems like he, he feels like he could shit on anyone. Like, anyone he's in some sort of conflict with is, is going to get the wrath of his ire. It just doesn't seem like he feels anyone is above him or beyond reproach. Which I think was probably the primary factor in why a lot of people found him appealing in 2016. Yeah. Right. So if you have a lot of anger, you know, a lot of just ambient rage towards institutions, not democratic or Republican or left and right or right, just the power elite. And you have somebody who just, you know, dumps on them with yeah. such contempt and yeah. doesn't have the slightest regard for any of it. It's kind of cathartic. You know, you want to side with that person because he hates the same things you hate. Well, I remember when he started using the term fake news, and I really thought it was a cop-out. I thought, well, this is just a, a, a really a sad way to delegitimize all these criticisms against him and all, all of the things that they were bringing up that at least seemingly were factual. But now... The more time goes on, and the more time, if the more you pay attention to the difference between left-wing reporting and right-wing reporting, and you try to find like, well, where, where, what's, where's the reality in this? Someone's biased. There's something going wrong here. When you, particularly when you see the coverage that we're currently dealing with 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 Biden, and you know, you rightly have uh, been extremely critical of uh, Twitter and Facebook, and these uh, social media giants that have chosen to censor the New York Post article and that they've, they've literally blocked the White House press secretary from Twitter because she posted a link to a story from a newspaper that's, you know, it's a 200-year-old-plus newspaper. I believe it's the oldest newspaper currently running in America. This is that Yeah, and the fourth largest. The fourth largest. It's insanity. I mean, it literally is they're locked. They're locked out of their Twitter account. They're locked out of their... They can't... In the week leading up to the election, the fourth largest newspaper, and I don't know if it's the oldest, but it's one of the oldest for sure. It was founded by Alexander Hamilton, is barred by Twitter, like the primary source of information for most people in journalism and politics, from posting information. It's, it's so it's, bizarre. It's madness. It's so bizarre. It's, it's madness. Yeah. And I you, think, you know, go ahead. I was going to say, you don't, the, 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 the coverage that you, you hear about, like if you pay attention to CNN, which I, I read CNN online pretty much every day. I just want to see what they're saying, at least. I used to read it for the news. 
and now I go, what is, what's their take? You don't see yeah. a, a god. I mean, it's like the Hunter Biden story is completely illegitimate. It's not worth our time. But Ellen's mean. Did you know Ellen's mean? She's still mean. Here's another story about Ellen being mean. It's f- fucking strange. This person broke up. You know, this rapper broke up with his girlfriend. Well, these two are getting back together. Front page of CNN. You don't hear a fucking peep about the revelations that are coming out of this laptop, where it ever came from. Jamie actually had a really good point. I want to bring it up to you to see if this is possible. Uh, so I've heard of people being able to hack into like an iCloud account from time to time. And if you had that ability to have the account hacked, you would need to clone it to a computer to then be able to decipher this material and then turn that into somewhere. Because you need to, you can't say you hacked the iCloud account. Mm-hmm. Is that possible that then they then put it on a, a MacBook, turn it in, and say, oh, look what's on this MacBook? But they do have emails and right, signed receipts yeah, you have, from well, Hunter Biden. At the, supposedly. Supposedly. Biden, the but they haven't laptop. denied that this is his laptop, which would be the first thing that's you would the, do. That's, this is the key point. So, you know, when we reported the Snowden archive, you know, like when we hit send that first time, like you asked me earlier... You know, there were millions of documents, right? Like there was, we had a high degree of confidence in their authenticity because we had verified a lot of them. You use your intuition, you examine them from a kind of metadata perspective to see if there's uh, indicia of forgery or alteration. But you can never prove the negative that none of the documents has been altered or forged by Snowden or by somebody else, right? Like you just don't know for sure with 100% certainty until you hit publish. And the way that you ultimately find out for sure is if you publish that first report and the people that you're reporting about don't come back and say, what the fuck are you talking about? That's not a real document. We didn't ever do that. That's not our doc. That's forged. And it was when the NSA didn't say that, that we, I, I mean, I don't think I've ever been so happy in my career in my life because that was proof that the archive was real because of course they would have said it mm. same thing you know last year in brazil we reported this series of exposés where my source had hacked the telephones of the highest and most powerful officials in brazil and the bolsonaro government and gave me the text conversations that they were having that revealed a lot of corruption same thing of course those people wouldn't verify or confirm to me that they were real before I published. They wanted me to be in doubt. And then once we published and they didn't say, those those aren't my conversations. Those are fabricated. We knew they were real and we perceived. So the, just the fact alone that Biden has never denied either that the conversations are real or that Hunter actually brought his laptop to that Delaware repair store. And you know, we've submitted questions. I've submitted questions to the Biden campaign and to Hunter Biden asking that question specifically, and they won't answer because of course they're fucking real. Um, but the the it was the the journalists, the media outlets like CNN that took the lead first in saying that this was Russian disinformation. Yeah. You know, like the standard way to get rid of information that they don't want the public to believe. They just lied about that. They just made that up. There was never any evidence that Russia had the slightest thing to do with it. Um, you know, and as to your question, the provenance is a little unclear. Like that is kind of a bizarre story, right? That like Hunter Biden brought in three laptops, never bothered to pick them up. The store owner out of curiosity looked in them once no one picked them up, saw that there was all this evidence of corruption and gave it to the FBI and Rudy Giuliani. I'm kind of skeptical, skeptical of that story myself, but why isn't the Biden campaign denying that and saying, no, Hunter never has been to that store in his life. That's a complete lie and, and cast. It's because it's probably true, but it's definitely true that these documents are 
are authentic. It sounds like a crazy thing to do until you factor in smoke and crack. Once you factor that in... That is a factor. That's a factor. Once you factor in smoke and crack, you're like, hey, you probably leave shit all over the place. Like, you're out of your mind. Like, and I don't blame him for that. You know, I mean, he's I obviously had a drug problem. And when you're smoking crack, you leave laptops at repair shops and you don't pay for them. That's, it seems normal. Right? Right. I mean, it's, that's the least of what you do, right? right. Like, if you're yeah. struggling with substance abuse, that does make it a lot more credible. But here's the thing. Like... This is why I don't think I've ever been as disgusted with my colleagues in my profession as I have been the last three weeks because of this story. And I'll tell you why. In general, journalists do not care about where material comes from if it's A, authentic, and B, newsworthy. For example, in 2016, somebody mailed a copy of Donald Trump's tax, tax, a copy of Donald Trump's tax returns to the New York Times just dropped it in the mail and sent it to their newsroom. They got it. To this day, they have no idea who sent it to them, let alone what the motives of that person was, were or what they had to do to get them. Did they break in, commit crimes? Did they hack? Was it the Russians? Was it Iran? They, the New York Times has no idea. But they, of course, they've reported on the contents as they should because that's what journalists do. And when asked, when their lead reporter, who's won two Pulitzers, was asked by NPR, how can you report on a document when you don't even know who gave it to you or what their motives were, he said what I would say and what all journalists should say, which is I don't give a shit about the source's motives. Sometimes you get great documents from sources who have terrible motives, you know, like they want to get vengeance on somebody. They feel, you know, like Deep Throat leaked about the Nixon administration to the Washington Post, not because he was a Snowden, not because he was noble, but because he was resentful that Nixon passed him over to be the director of the FBI. So... That's, so this idea that journalists are using, like, oh, my God, this might have come from Russia, therefore we shouldn't report it, is a complete corruption of the journalistic uh, function. But the reality, Joe, like, why are we even talking about this? Like, everyone knows the reality. I work in journalism. I have, you know, lots of colleagues that I work with. I have tons of friends in every news outlet up the east and up and down the east coast from new york to washington and then on the west coast the reason is is because they're all desperate for trump to lose that's the reality they all want biden to win and so they don't want to report any information or any stories that might help biden lose in part because they want biden to win but also because in their social circles everybody essentially is anti-trump and pro-biden and they don't want to spend four years being accused of having helped Trump won like they were in 2016 when they reported on those emails that were leaked by the WikiLeaks. And it's just fear. They don't want to be yelled at. They don't want to be scorned in their social circles. And so they're willing to abdicate their journalistic function, which is reporting on one of the most powerful people in the world and Joe Biden, in part because they want to manipulate and tinker with the election using journalism but in much bigger part because they're scared of being yelled at on twitter it's fucking pathetic and it's going to ruin people's faith in journalism for a long time even more so than it already it already is ruined for good reason i now defend people who say fake news as you were saying even though in 2016 i didn't like it either because it's just true it's just true. They will lie. They will print things that they have no idea whether or not they're true. If the CIA tells them to, or if they think they can get attention from it about from, for it, or a pause uh, for, uh, uh, from their colleagues on Twitter. Um, and I don't blame you know. If you have faith in mainstream news institutions, you're really irrational. 
I'm so glad you said that a lot of them are not printing things because they're worried about being yelled at on Twitter because it really is the case. And self-censorship is one of the more eerie aspects of knowing that you can get deplatformed off of Twitter for things and knowing that you can get yelled at or you can get Twitter mobbed because of your beliefs, because of standing up for something that may be correct but unpopular. This is, I mean, what journalism is supposed to be is telling people what the facts are, giving people unbiased perspectives, objective perspectives on what is happening in the news and how this could possibly relate to their real lives. This is what it's supposed to be. It doesn't seem like it's supposed to be that at all right now during these elections. It's scary. No one is pay You're supposed to not pay any attention to all the crazy gaffes. You're not supposed to pay any attention to the very real concerns that Joe Biden is losing his mind. And if you say that, you're an asshole and people will attack you. They'll say, you don't understand. He stutters. And this is all because of the He called Trump Bush yesterday. He called him George. Did you see that? He said, we don't want another four more years of George. This is standard. Like, this is, we, we, what, do you remember when, um, when, uh, what was his name? Howard Dean yelled that, ah! remember that yell? Yeah, yeah, after Iowa, when he got his third place finish in Iowa, he was trying to, like, excite his young, you know, disappointed supporters, and he did that, like, weird primal scream, and they ruined him over it. It was, it was a yell, though, that he did, if you've ever talked in front of a live audience, when people scream and cheer, it's so loud, you yell and you can't even hear your voice because it's so, like, you don't even realize how crazy it sounds. But then when you isolate that sound and you take it just from the microphone, it sounds crazy. And that's what it sounded. Yeah. To him in the moment, probably didn't sound crazy at all, but that was enough. And I remember it being all over all these newspapers and every every television show. Oh, that was ruined him. That ruined him. That, ru that destroyed his candidate. And, like, remember, too, the context of that was. He was running for president in 2004, so it was 2003, you know, the, and then into early 2004 that w when the primaries were, he was leading in the polls by like 30 points all year long, and he was the only one at the time, you know, here, Howard Dean has turned into like a complete sleazy lobbyist piece of garbage, but like at the time, he was one of the only people willing to stand up and say, um... You know, George Bush and Dick Cheney have lied us into a murderous war. Um, we're on endless war posture. The government is constantly lying. Um, so he, he, he was so off the track from what the bipartisan consensus was that they were out to destroy him. And you're absolutely right. Look what they were willing to do. That scream, all it was was, you know, at the, he was kind of like from the Eugene McCarthy 1968 candidacy that was supported largely by young college kids excited by an anti-war candidate. That was who Dean's supporters were. And they were traveling all over the country, going door to door on his behalf. And when he came in third place in Iowa, they were really disappointed. He was trying to cheer them up. That was it. Yeah. Um, and they basically just manipulating that footage, you know, turned him overnight into someone who was mentally unstable and he never recovered from that. It's crazy to see. And it's, it's crazy to see the difference between the way they're treating Biden. They're treating Biden with the most gentle, caressing hands. They're treating him with the bit, the bit, like, I've never seen more bias, like more complete ignoring of some real problems with the way he communicates with the things he says with the lies that he says like for instance like during the debate him saying that he never said 
that he was going to ban fracking. Like, that's just not true. And you don't see it anywhere. You don't see it on any of these liberal media pages. No, you know what? You know what? It's so. First of all, if you go and watch like the inter- the very few interviews that he's given, I, I'm not saying this for a fact or like to 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 use hyperbole to make a point. I'm saying this because it's literally true. I don't think he's been asked a single hard question. This is somebody who's been in public life for 50 years. He was elected as a senator in 1972. He had to drop out of his first presidential race because of serial lying and plagiarism about his you know, college record and his, about his academic accomplishments. Um, he's somebody who has sponsored the worst, most destructive policies over the last 20 years from the Iraq war to the crime bill that has made the US the biggest prison state in the world. He was part of an administration, as you were alluding to earlier, that has you know persecuted whistleblowers more than any other. There's a ton of things to ask him about, but in the interviews, they adopt, you know that like, I don't know you probably have had that experience when you go and like you visit an old relative, like one of your grandparents who's like in a nursing home and you know, you go in and like kind of like soften your voice. So you don't like, you don't want to be like, feel like scare them or like feel abrasive. And like, if they make kind of anything resembling a joke, like you sort of fake laugh, yes. right? Like you're like, Oh, that that's what that, like, that's how they talk to him. Interviewers on yeah. television. They like treat him like an old ailing grandparent, but one who is beloved. And like, this is the thing about, this is the most amazing thing about this whole thing with cognitive decline, which anyone who watches him for 15 minutes knows is true. The people who were the first ones to disseminate that storyline were not supporters of Bernie Sanders once the primary got down to Biden and, and, and Bernie. It was in 2018 and into 2019, when Biden was by far the leading Democratic candidate because of his name recognition and because of his eight years as vice president standing next to Obama, it was Democratic establishment operatives, strategists, consultants, just like that whole D.C. professional Democratic Party class, which was petrified that he was going to get the nomination because of his name recognition, because of the favorable sentiment within the party toward him because of Obama. And they were the ones, and you can go find this, these clips. I actually wrote an article about it once when I started um, talking about cognitive decline and people started saying, this is a shitty low blow. You're just doing this to sabotage his campaign to help Bernie. And I was like, are you fucking crazy? Like you're the ones who have spent the last year and a half on Morning Joe, in the Washington Post op-ed pages, you got, it was, I don't know if you remember, but there was a CNN debate when all the Democratic candidates were still part of the process when Julian Castro interrupted Biden and accused him of having contradicted what he had said three seconds ago. And he was like, Joe, did you just forget what you said 20 seconds ago? And then they interviewed Cory Booker and he said, yeah, you know, if you listen to Joe Biden, you really wonder whether he's capable of carrying the football over the fit. They were the ones petrified that he wouldn't be able to withstand the rigors of a campaign. The only thing that saved him was the Corona pandemic, coronavirus pandemic, which let him sit at home. But had it not been for that, their fears would have become true. And now they've like declared what we can all see with our own eyes and what they themselves were saying all this time, it's declared off limits to say it, even though they're the ones who recognized first that it was true. And that's the kind of stuff that gets really creepy 
when they have the power to manipulate and control and dictate the discourse to that extent. Well, it's like they've accepted the fact that people are putting out information and saving information for a very specific October surprise. So they're saying, okay, well, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to deny this information. And when you're talking about the cognitive decline of Joe Biden and to highlight it and to make a series of, you know, a compilation of these gaffes, that would be bad for his campaign, and we don't want him to lose. We want Trump to win. So we're just going to ignore it. Even though it's news, we're just going to ignore it. But So then fake news is fake news. So then it really is fake. And this is where we're finding ourselves in 2020. We're, like, we're a person without a country. We, do, we don't know who to trust. We don't know when we're look, trying to find the news. We can't go to Twitter. Because Twitter's blocking things now. Well, Twitter was the only thing that we trusted before. Because Twitter was, if an independent journalist was able to leak a story and put something out, at least no one could stop them from putting it on Twitter. At least they didn't have to have the blessing of the Washington Post or the New York Times or anything else. They could just put something out there, and if it was verified, that, that story could spread. Well, now it can't even be the case. Because if Twitter decides that that is dangerous to the person that they want to win for president, they'll just pull the story. And this is where we're at. And it's terrifying. It's just, it's really Yeah, weird. you know, well, I mean, you know, I, I talk to people about the kind of independent media that's thriving, right? Um, your success drives a lot of journalists really crazy. And it's not just you, though. It's if you look at the podcasts that are succeeding and the way they succeed is that you know they don't just occupy a place on your tv that you accidentally stumble into you have to actually go and find it decide you're going to listen to it and a lot of times most of the time pay for it that's what makes it successful why what is it that's thriving what is it that's succeeding it is the people who have no interest in being part of that hegemonic media blob who aren't concerned with affirming their pieties and their orthodoxies and in fact are in a lot of ways hostile to it or at least skeptical of it and eager to explore whether or not what they're saying is true because they don't trust any longer what they're hearing and you know it is like if you go back to the snowden story right one of the reasons snowden did what he did one of the reasons he was so horrified by this you know mass indiscriminate secret surveillance is because the idea of the internet, the promise of it, if you go back and read what internet enthusiasts were saying in the mid nineties and into the beginning of the century was, this is gonna be the most unprecedented tool of liberation and empowerment of people who don't have voices because it's gonna enable people to communicate and disseminate information without having to rely on corporate structures that can afford printing presses or satellites for networks. And that was true. And the problem became if you allow the government to turn it into you know, this kind of um, tyrannical realm of surveillance, you ruin, you gut what is promising about it. And in fact, you degrade it into this threatening weapon that's exactly how I see censorship by Facebook and Twitter. And what's amazing about um, the censorship by Silicon Valley now, um, I've talked to Jack Dorsey quite a bit about this because he's someone who's a really interesting guy. He seeks out a lot of voices to hear from and to get input about. He cares about you know, trying to make Twitter a positive force in the society, and he's torn in a lot of different directions by people demanding different things of him. But it's true of Twitter, it's true of, of Facebook, it's true of Google. They never wanted this censorship role. 
Um, not for noble reasons, but because it was just, it's better for their business if they get to say, you know what, we don't regulate content. We're like AT&T, right? Like if somebody calls someone on AT&T's telephone lines and plans a neo-Nazi rally or spreads Holocaust denialism, nobody expects AT&T to intervene and terminate that person's service or cut off the call. AT&T is a content neutral platform. They just say, we provide the ability for human beings to communicate and we don't control or censor or monitor. And that's better for AT&T. They don't have to spend the money to monitor or censor. They don't have to get yelled at about doing it well or doing it poorly. And they make more money because more people, that's the model that Silicon Valley wanted. The reason why they ended up censoring is because mostly liberal activists and journalists demanded that they did so. They started saying to Facebook, how can you allow Alex Jones or Milo Yiannopoulos or then it became once they were kicked off, you know, kind of more mainstream, but still out of the norm kind of people. And increasingly, they're just expanding the range of demands that they have for who needs to be silenced and threatening congressional regulation if they don't do it, threatening um, all kinds of recriminations that it, this responsibility to censor was foisted on these companies. But now that they're doing it, it's only going to grow. Um, and I think this, you know, attempt by Twitter and Facebook to block this New York Post story is one of the most alarming things that has happened in years from a perspective of free discourse and free dissemination. The guy from Facebook who announced that the New York Post story was going to be suppressed spent the last 15 or 20 years before going to Facebook working as a Democratic Party operative in Washington. He worked for Senator Barbara Boxer and then the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. He was a He's a Democratic operative. And he walks onto Twitter and says, we at Facebook are going to be suppressing this story pending our own investigation to determine it's... Who would want Silicon Valley overlords? Unaccountable, outside of the Democratic process, Silicon Valley overlords to control our discourse the answer is liberals do and journalists do and that's why they're doing it it's just so stunning because liberals have always been synonymous with free speech in the first amendment the aclu has always been about i mean if you, if you think about it, a liberal organization the aclu is probably one of the most liberal organizations you know like iconic liberal organizations they've always been about supporting free speech even if it's terrible support even neo nazis ability to have free speech i mean this and it, it's been something that pe it's been highly controversial to some people but it's always been people on the left understood the value and the importance the significance of free speech the ability to accurately tell the truth to the, the ability to express yourself freely the ability to tell all the facts and now they're the ones that are suppressing it because they don't like the guy who's in power because we have this guy who's such a perfect symbol of all that is wrong with power all that is wrong with someone being the president with ego and you know lies and all, all the, the various things that people pin on Trump and a lot of them accurate but He's become this enemy, and it's, he's such an iconic enemy that they've justified all these ways of combating him using principles that violate everything they supposedly stood for. Yeah, you know, he really, he, I think Trump has broken the brains of so many people. Yes. Not in a temporary way where it's all going to just, you know, recover instantly upon his departure, but... It's going to endure permanently. And there's, first of all, 
you know, when I was growing up, um, kind of what shaped my political outlook were a lot of the censorship debates in the 1980s. You know, I was growing up as a gay kid in the s suburbs in the Reagan years and with the moral majority. And, you know, I remember like one big censorship controversy was Sinead O'Connor went on Saturday Night Live and she ripped up a picture of the Pope. Um, which is what the left and, you know, growing out of the 60s, it was like that's where the transgressive values were. Like whatever the institutions of authority decree as being sacred and can't be said, people on the left pushed those, those, those limits and said, we're not going to obey your dictates. We're going to say exactly that, which is taboo, if for no other reason than just to establish our right to say it. And that became the framework for how these freedom of speech and freedom of expression conflicts played out um there's a new film out by a, a new documentary about ira glasser who was the executive director of the aclu from 1978 until 2001 and his first controversy was when the aclu which you know largely was filled with jewish lawyers and supported by jewish donors because it came out of this tradition of jewish leftism in the united states that believed in free speech and civil liberties because as a vulnerable minority, they knew that allowing the state to acquire the power of censorship would eventually be turned on them. And so one of the most controversial cases they ever did, as you just alluded to, was they represented the right of neo-Nazis, actual Nazis wearing swastika armbands, who applied for a permit to have a march in Skokie, Illinois, which was a town filled not just with Jews, but with tons of Holocaust survivors, actual you know, people who were in Auschwitz and Buchenwald in the camps and had tattoos on their arm, you know, the number of tattoos of, of survivors. And they said, we don't, we don't want to be traumatized by watching Nazis march down our street with that uniform that terrorized us for all those years. And the ACLU, the Jewish lawyers and directors of the ACLU defended them. And there's a film out, and I just interviewed him actually, um, where he says that, you know, not only was Jewish leftism supportive of free speech, but a lot of his closest allies at the time defending his decision to defend the right of white supremacists and neo-Nazis to march and to speak freely without government censorship were civil rights leaders, African-American civil rights leaders, who also knew that if these precedents were permitted to take root against white supremacists first, the government would then turn, you know, the state of Alabama would say, we're not going to allow the NAACP to march through our streets. They are rabble rousers and they incite violence. And um, that was the tradition on the left that is being completely abandoned, not just you know, in like standard mainstream liberal institutions, but even in the ACLU, which has a slew of new lawyers under 30, under 35, millennials, Gen Z uh, activists who just don't believe in the core values of free speech in every institution, Joe, like in political activism, in media, for sure, obviously in academia, is being riven with this dispute between people who insist on the right to express views without being constrained or prevented or controlled by others and people who believe that free speech is just not even close to the highest value and that when other values are in conflict with it, free speech has to give way. It is one of the, if not the most kind of tumultuous conflicts of our time. It's so disturbing how little understanding they have of where this plays out and that censorship in any form whether you censor someone who you don't like like milo yiannopoulos it will eventually lead to someone who's less offensive than him and then less offensive than them and then less offensive than them and it'll go to you 
It will come for you. It will eventually come for you. You will say something wrong. You will, you will, you will support something that they don't agree with, and whoever has the power to censor will deplatform you. They will remove you if we allow this. And we're in this weird place in America where a lot of people are looking at these social media companies and saying this is not as simple as this is a private company and they have the ability to choose who does and who doesn't use their platform. These things are like a public square. These things are like a utility. They're, it's like electricity or water. And it's something that everyone should have access to because it literally changes the way human beings view the world. It changes with people's contributions and with people's ability to express themselves. It changes the information that you gather. It changes the whether or not someone's perspective resonates with you or not. If you don't get access to that perspective, you don't get to see it. You don't get to, s to understand their point of view. And it changes the overall view of the world. And this is where we are. We're, we're in this weird place where these groups of people who are largely on the left have decided to abandon those values that you talked about, the original ACLU values. And they've chosen to instead be ideological and, and, and completely biased to their own personal position to the point where they're willing to abandon free speech. And it's terrifying because I don't think they understand where this leads. I don't think they've done the math. I don't think they've extrapolated. They, they can't think two seconds in front of their faces. Um, you know, one of the things that's so bizarre is if you, if you asked, you know, like a random leftist, what do you think of Facebook? They'll say... Oh, I think Mark Zuckerberg is a fascist piece of shit. And then you say, like, what do you think of the federal courts in the United States? And they'll say, oh, it's completely repressive. They're, like, filled with right-wing judges, which is true. And you say, like, what do you think of the U.S. government? Oh, the U.S. government is basically a fascist dictatorship. It's run by Donald Trump. And then you say, are you in favor of giving those institutions, Facebook, the federal courts, the U.S. government, greater power to censor ideas and information that you don't like. And they'll say, yeah, absolutely. It's critical that hate speech not be circulated. And they never fucking think for one second, why are these institutions that I hate and I think are fascist and repressive and authoritarian institutions that I'm willing to vest the power in to control the flow of information? And the, the one of the problems is that everyone you know, for the most part, thinks in terms of right versus left. So this is the only prism through which people can understand at least the political component of the world. And it's a very stunted prism because it excludes so much. So they think that if you can induce social media companies to start censoring and excluding right-wing uh, speech and, and deleting the pages of right-wing ideologues or right-wing um, activists, that that's a victory. But that isn't how it works. They're not censoring it because it's right-wing. They're censoring it because it's outside of the mainstream. They're always, 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 always views that adhere to mainstream orthodoxies are going to be permitted. Censorship is always directed at those who are somehow outside of the realm of what's considered acceptable by power centers. That, by definition, is where censorship goes, and it's going to go to the right and the left equally. It's not going to go to one or the other. It's the most, aside from the morality and the ethics of wanting people with whom you disagree silenced by tech monopolies, 
it's it's just incredibly fucking stupid from a strategic perspective because it is going to be turned on you without doubt. It already is. There's already um, censorship of left wing pages. If if the Israeli government, for example, goes to Facebook and says that Palestinian media outlet or this Gazan activist is inciting terrorism, Facebook will, in almost every case, accept the request of the Israelis to censor them because the Israelis are much more powerful than the Palestinians and that's how corporations operate. This is the model, the framework that the left is empowering without realizing how self-destructive it is. It's maddening and it is terrifying because all human history, the entire history of human intellect is nothing but humans believing that they found some absolute truth and then a subsequent generation realizing that it's not just erroneous, but morally rotten. And if you preclude the ability of human beings to question and challenge every precept, every principle, including or especially the ones that have been declared most sacred, the, the ones that have been declared most unchallengeably true, You've deprived humanity of one of its most important weapons, probably its most important one, for fostering progress, for combating despotism, for questioning the pronouncements of institutions of authority. And that's what people who think they're anti-authoritarian are doing. I'm so glad you're out there because <laughs> guys like you are one of the few that are willing to take this chance and speak like this and challenge all, all of these institutions openly. And um, I, I think there's so many people out there that, as you said, are worried about being yelled at on Twitter and worried about not being able to get a job, worried about, you know, you're, there's so many folks that are dependent upon these large institutions, whether it's newspapers or television shows or whatever it is, and they, they can't freely express their concern with the way things are going because in many people's eyes, that's insignificant compared to get Donald Trump out of office. So everything, everything goes by the wayside. Get Donald Trump out of office. That's, that, that, that's, that's number one. After that, we can concentrate on all those other things. But whatever you have to do to get Donald Trump out of office, save democracy. Someone, someone actually sent me a message, someone I, I really like, and they, they sent me a message saying that they could get me an interview but they want me to vote for Joe Biden. Come on, save democracy. This was the, 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 the message that I got. And I was looking at this message on my computer. Go, what the fuck is, ha is there a virus going on? Like, not, uh, uh, besides the coronavirus? Is there something that's like infecting people's minds and like uh, snipping wires and disconnecting trains of thought? Like, what the fuck is happening? It's, but guys like you, guys like Matt Taibbi, there's, there's a few people out there that are sticking their neck out, and it gives me hope. It gives me hope that people are listening to you, and people are reading your words, and people are paying attention, and, and hopefully it's resonating. And, ho and hopefully some of these people that are doing this are realizing with shame that they're a part of this really disgraceful act, that they're a part of this cowardly way of thinking and of not calling out all this shit. And if Joe Biden does get in office and they do see it declining even further and sliding even further down this d disgusting trend that we, we find ourselves on right now, I hope they realize the error of their ways. But by then it might be yeah, too but, late. But, the, but, 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 but here's, here's the problem. Here's what's worrying me the most, which is, you know, you instinctively, that is something that you can kind of put your hope in, right? Is to say, well, look, I mean, there's an election in a week or you know, a few days, 
And all the polls suggest Biden's likely to win. And once Trump is out of the way, a lot of this insanity is going to disappear and things are going to kind of return to some degree of normalcy. And here's why I don't think that's true. So many institutions are profiting. I don't just mean financially, but in terms of power and control from elevating fear levels over right-wing fascism, over white supremacists, domestic terrorism, whatever you want to call it. And obviously, I mean, it's not, doesn't take a lot of insight to observe that historically the way you consolidate your power is if you can put people in fear. You know, during the Cold War, you make everybody fear that the Russians and the communists are coming to take away your right to believe in God. And everybody says, you know, build up a huge nuclear arsenal and don't use the money for our schools and our communities. Use it for you know, the greatest military in the world and spy on everybody and whatever you need to do to defeat this existential threat, to do it. Obviously, after 9-11, that was the strategy of the Bush-Cheney administration. It's the way they consolidated a lot of power by elevating people's perceptions way beyond what it was real of the threat of Islamic terrorism to allow them to do essentially everything they did. The same exact thing is happening now, which is people in media have had their careers saved. I know cable hosts who are on the verge of being fired because nobody was fucking listening to their dumb shows in 2007 and 2008 when all they were doing is talking about how great Obama was because who wants to listen to that? Trump, or, or 2015 rather, Trump was a godsend to them because Trump enabled them to elevate everybody's fear level and say this man who's coming isn't just another president. He's a grave threat to everything that's good in our lives. And it's not just him, but his entire movement behind him, hundreds and tens of millions of people who are racist, who are hardcore white supremacist, white supremacy domestic terrorists. It caused MSNBC and the New York Times to explode with money. It caused the CIA and the FBI and tons of those neocon scumbags to rehabilitate their reputation and get back within the, the halls of power. Even if Trump loses the election, they're not going to just go back to now talking about Joe Biden because they know people are going to cancel their subscriptions and turn the TV channel again. They're going to continue to say, not maybe Trump or at least his movement, still pose this existential threat. You know, they're out there plotting to um, kill people and impose white supremacy. And it's not that it's not true. There's no, it's not like there's not a kernel of truth to it. There are people doing that. But they're going to inflate it wildly so that any questioning of Joe Biden, even with Trump out of the picture, is still going to be depicted as, um, you know, endangering American liberty, as helping fascism, um, as serving the agenda of the Kremlin. And the need for censorship as a result is going to be accepted by more and more people because of that fear that these media outlets and government institutions with whom they partner are going to be still instilling in people for their own benefit, for their own aim. I think you're 100% accurate, and I'm, I'm concerned as well. But I, I, my, my real concern is I don't see a way out of this. I don't see like a clear, like, oh, we got to go that way. I don't, I don't see a, a, a path. I don't see it. I'm worried. I'm worried that we already have the brakes off of this truck and we're headed downhill. Well, what, what meaning do you derive from the fact that you've built this massive audience? I mean, does, I don't think that's bereft of meaning or significance. I think there's a reason for it. What, what reason do you think explains that? That's a very good question, and I specifically go out of my way to not answer it. Personally, yeah. me, myself, I mean, to myself, not, not, not explain it to someone like you, but I don't think about it. 
And one of the reasons why is because I feel like if I start thinking about what it does, I'll stop doing it the way I do it, and it won't be the same right. thing. I started doing this podcast with my friend Brian. We were smoking weed and talking on a laptop in 2009, uh -huh. answering questions from like 100 people on Twitter, just having fun. You look at the early ones on Ustream, to this day, they have like 1,000 views, 2,000 views. Nobody gave a shit. I never promoted this podcast. I never took out an ad for it. I never went on a television show or anything else saying, please watch my podcast. Please listen to my podcast. It, it organically became what it is. I have no idea how it happened. I never planned it. It was all, I, I did it at, just for fun, forever. And then all of a sudden it became this giant business. So I'm like, well, I still have to do it the same way. Because if I don't do it the same way, then it becomes something different. And I can't think about what it is. I just, uh, when, I, when I meet people and they say they love it, I go, thanks, not hi, that's it. Just keep going, just keep moving. And I've, I've, I've developed these ways of compartmentalizing my life and compartmentalizing what the podcast is, and I keep it what it is. And what it is is just a place where I go and I talk to people. The people that I talk to, I only talk to who I'm interested in talking to. I have zero agenda. I go, oh, I want to talk to Glenn Greenwald. He seems cool. Oh, I want to talk to... Uh, uh, Graham Hancock. Oh, that scientist that just came back from the space station. Let's see if we can talk to him. What the fuck is that like? You know, oh, this guy just got back from, uh, you know, trekking across Europe uh, with, with snowshoes. Let's talk to that guy. Like, that's all it is. And until I, to the day I say I don't want to do this anymore, it's going to remain that because it's the only way I can keep doing it the way it is. So the fact that it's become insanely influential is beyond bizarre to me because I feel like as much as I'm the host of this thing, I'm uh, like an antenna. I just sort of plug in, and then it's got a life of its own, and it sort of does its own but, work. But I, I, it's not actually so bizarre to me. Um, you know, and I, I actually, you know, I, I think you know, I, I wrote an article about it, and then I, I, I did a show. I interviewed a former uh, campaign official from from the 2008 Obama campaign, who's an avid listener of yours and who's written. Um, and I, about your show, and he's actually the one who encouraged me to start listening because before I started listening, you know, I just kind of heard in the ether things about your show that, you know, I didn't necessarily believe adamantly, but assumed were basically true. And then I started watching and, and saw how untrue it was. Um, but, you know, I think that exactly the way that you began, you know, when I, the way I began my journalism career is I didn't go like to Columbia Journalism School and then go and, you know, get a job with like some local newspaper and then work my way up to the New York Times. So I wasn't inculcated with all the institutional code and um, regulations of how you can speak and the tone that you use and how you can describe the world. I just started my blog one day because I felt like I had things to say and nobody was reading it and I gradually built up a readership and then I just from there have always done it that way, right? Like it's kind of like what you were just saying. And I think that the reason that you've attracted so many people watching your show who like it and and I don't want to analyze it for you if you don't want to hear an analysis because I don't want to like infect your ability to just do it organically. But you were saying like, what is the solution to all of this? What's like the uh, way out? And I think that you can look at your show as kind of a microcosm of what one answer might be, which is exactly that. Like I think I know a lot of people who listen to your show who don't agree with a lot of what you say or don't or who hate some of the guests that you have on. But what they know is that you're doing this because you don't have to say anything that you don't believe. And that's a huge uh, 
asset for people who don't trust people that they're hearing in the media and don't believe anything that they're saying is, look, that guy may not be an expert in things and everything that he's talking about or even much of what he's talking about. And maybe sometimes he platforms people who are bad and says some things that are misguided, but at least I believe that he's being honest. Like he's just kind of like trying to figure the world out for no reason other than to figure it out. And I think that there are huge numbers of people, huge numbers of people. Like I think you're just tapping into the kind of tip of it um, who crave discourse that is emancipated from these repressive you know principles of how the media speaks and conducts itself and how people are forced to express themselves and that is what that does give me a lot of hope i think it gives me a lot of hope as well and i think um one of the things that we hope the internet would be would be this place where people had access to information that they would never have had previously and this uh this avenue for free expression that just really never existed before. There's never been a time in history where, I mean, we really have a skeleton crew. I mean, right now it's, it's me and my friend, Jamie, the producer, and it reaches hundreds of millions of people. And that, that's just really never existed before. I mean, there's a couple of video editors and some other people that work for the, the podcast behind the scenes, but that's basically it. If Which you, is why journalists hate you, right? Like they, you know, they went to all the best journalism schools and they've like sat in their editorial meetings for 20 years. And if they go and speak on YouTube, they're going to be watched by 15,000 people and they think it's outrageous that you have this audience to which you're not entitled. Well, they're, they're entitled to their own thoughts, but they could have this audience too. They just have to be interesting enough to gather it and they have to grind. The thing is like you don't get it right away and you don't get it right away just because you work for the New York Times. People will listen and they'll go, well, I don't like this or this is boring or you know, for whatever reason it resonates or it doesn't resonate. And it's, it's a free path for everybody. And the beauty of it is you don't have to be connected to the Washington Post or the New York Times or any other institution. But the people that think that that was the path and they worked all their life thinking that this is the path and then they've been shown that they've kind of maybe spun their wheels, not, not only spun their wheels and wasted some time, but gotten on a bad path ideologically where they've thought in these, these tight grooves that were previous, previously established for them. They've been given these conglomeration of opinions to adopt and they have adopted them faithfully. And then all of a sudden they realize like, well, you know, look at this fucking meathead pot smoking, you know, UFC commentator has all these people paying attention to him. What the fuck is going on? And why is Bernie Sanders on his show? And why are all these other people on his show? Like, well, you could do that too. Like anybody could do this. It's just putting in the time. It's just having this perspective where you're, you want to look at things for what they really are. Don't be beholden to ideologies and put in the time. That's, that should be yeah. encouraging to people. Yeah, yeah. That if you have something interesting and unique to offer that people want to hear, the internet enables you to reach them without having this mediation necessary of big corporations. I think that is, in, that is encouraging. Um, the thing that, though, is discouraging is that one of the problems about why this freedom of expression in the media in particular where 
uh, it's more necessary than anywhere, right, for journalists to be able to say things that provoke people's anger, that poke at and prod at um, consensus rather than just reciting it, is that when you're a young journalist and you get a job and you're not being paid very well, but at least you're getting paid enough income to survive. And so many of your friends with whom you went to college, you get out of college and are loaded with tons of debt, don't even have jobs. And you at least got one. And you look around an industry, which is journalism, where you see jobs disappearing by the thousands. The last thing you want to do is stick your head up and say something that makes people in your newsroom or your editors angry because you've questioned or dissented from one of their sacred convictions. And I've seen how that works. That really is fostering a huge amount of conformity. I remember all the time, you know, during the Russiagate bullshit, when Matt Taibbi and I, and maybe a couple of others, were, you know, out there saying this is a bullshit scandal, there's no evidence that any of this happened, not that Russia didn't do the hacking, but that Trump and Russia colluded criminally to, or that Russia was infiltrating the United States and control, you know, that this is all conspiratorial garbage. I was hearing all the time from journalists at the Washington Post and CNN and the Times and cable networks who were saying, thank you guys, I'm so glad you and Matt are doing this. Um, I wish I could, but I really don't feel I can. I feel like I would lose my job and probably not get another one. That is really that that the the lack of a viable economic model in journalism is suffocating whatever little ability there was for journalists to kind of um, express themselves freely. Yeah, it's terrifying for them because they don't have protection. And to, to, to stick your neck out and to try a podcast and to say something on a podcast that is controversial or uh, is outside the orthodoxy and to get fired for that or canceled for that or to get ostracized or be labeled a this or a that, it's terrifying. You could lose your ability to make an income, and there's no guarantee that your podcast will be successful, particularly now. You know, when I started the podcast in 2009, I don't know how many there were then, but now there's close to a million of them which is insane. That means like one out of 300 people, if you, it was just in the United States, I'm sure it's worldwide, but if it was just in the United States, one out of, one out of like a million podcasts is one out of 300 people in the United States. Imagine 300 people and one of them has a podcast. I mean, what is it going to be like uh, five years from now? Is it going to be 50% of the people have a podcast? I mean, it's the numbers are so insurmountable. It's almost impossible for anybody to break through unless you get help from the other people that are inside the network. So, like, if you are one of those people that has a popular podcast, one of the beautiful things about it is that you can kind of help other people get seen and get recognized. And it's one of the more generous communities. The the, the good thing about podcasting is that when you have this um, group of people that have gotten through in this uh, sort of unorthodox way. A lot of them encourage other people to do it as well. And a lot of them are, I'm very encouraging of it, maybe to a fault. I'm constantly telling people they should do a podcast because I really think it doesn't take that much of your time. And if you just invest enough time in it, you develop a fan base and it, it, it exponentially increases. People tell people, they tell their friends, you have an episode that resonates and, and then it could go viral or you know it can get shared and you can get to a point where you can have a sustainable business that's completely independent. And it's possible. It is possible to do. But if you're a person who's also trying to work in journalism, you're also trying to get hired by a major institution, and you say something 
in this other form of media, this podcast form, that can get you fired from that, it will inhibit your ability to express yourself. So in that case, it will also inhibit the ability of the podcast to resonate. So it's such a catch-22 because you kind of have to... You kind of have to toe the line. You kind of have to be full of yeah. shit. Yeah, I'll tell you like one this 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 experience I had recently that I found horrifying and like really eliminated for me how repressive things had become. I went to New York, um, as I often do, because the media outlet I founded is based there, and I had dinner with two colleagues who work in journalism and who are actually pretty well established in their careers. They're not, you know junior level journalists who are clinging to a job. They're people who have climbed up the editorial and journalistic ladder. And one of them, they both live in Brooklyn. And one of them has a 15 year old daughter whose best friend is a trans boy who has had um, top surgery. So he has had his breast removed and poses on Instagram with his shirt off. And then the, my other friend with whom I was dining that night, it was pretty recently, like maybe within the last year, um, has a 17-year-old daughter who's dating a trans boy who's 17, who's also had various gender reassignment surgeries. And we were talking just, you know, as friends about how young people these days are who are making this choice to identify as trans and to pursue gender reassignment surgery, have permanent alterations to their body that will never be reversible, even if later on in life they decide that they had misdiagnosed themselves or been misdiagnosed. And both of them were expressing serious concerns about, as, as parents of teenagers, about A, how pervasive this was becoming and whether there was kind of something in the culture encouraging or even pressuring kids to reach these conclusions and parents to kind of push them into it for their own reasons. Not anything malicious, but just kind of cultural encouragement that might be leading people to be misdiagnosed or misdiagnosing themselves. And also, secondly, the capacity of someone at the age of 14 or 15 to make decisions about their lives of that magnitude that would be irreversible, biologically or anatomically irreversible. And it was a really interesting conversation we talked about. We explored the issue. It was, you know, a really interesting discussion. We probably talked about 45 minutes or an hour. I got back to Brazil and I realized that that discussion that we had, they would never, ever in a million years in their column, on a podcast, on their show, admit to having those thoughts. They would never be willing to explore publicly those questions that we were all raising with one another and thinking about in a really interesting way because they're petrified of being scorned for it or being condemned. And that is a sickness in our culture that is only going to get worse, but that has toxic effects that I don't think can be overstated. It's whenever there's a subject that you can't talk about, whenever there's a, when there's a subject that can't be breached, that's you've you've you're in a religion now you're in a cult like you can't discuss things like you must adhere to the rigid ideology that's been established that you 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 have to say this if someone decides that they're trans at three or five or 19 or whatever it is that there can be no questions my question has always been have there been people who have had gender reassignment who regret it the answer is yes. Yeah, of course, of course. And are there people who have had gender reassignment who are happy? 
The answer is yes. Obviously. Human beings are insanely malleable. That's why cults exist. That's why evangelists are able to gather so much money. That's why people decide to be typically unique, right? Like how many people are, uh, they're rebels, but they're rebels in a mold, right? It's human beings love to fit into forms that they find to be appealing, that they find to resonate with uh, the current uh, zeitgeist, whatever it is. And this is one area where we've decided, no, that's not the case. No, in, when it comes to uh, children be recognizing as trans, there is no way. There can be no errors. It is, it is all in. And, I mean, many of, many of these people are rightfully looking at it in the way that people who are trans are maligned by society. They, 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 they don't feel like they're accepted. They feel like they're discriminated against. So these people who are sensitive, kind people, look at them. They want to embrace them at all costs. But by doing so, you've, you've ignored reality, the, the reality that we know that humans, we're weird creatures. We're weird creatures. We, we have very strange ideas about things that go left and right. I mean, how many people do you know that are they're lifelong Democrats and all of a sudden they become a Republican and they're fucking pro-life and they get crazy? Like, people are weird. We shift our opinions on all sorts of things. People like uh, Cat Stevens becomes a Muslim, changes his name to Yusuf Islam. Goes, like, people change, but the idea that they don't do that with gender, that the only thing they do that with is, is, is religion and these other things, that the gender is specifically the one thing that there's no confusion about whatsoever. Well, that's crazy, because people are confused all the time about everything. And the other thing I brought up to a friend, I said, do you know that Many, especially trans uh, women, if they don't have this reassignment, it's been shown that they become gay men. So is it homophobic to want that person to only be trans? Like, is it to, to have a rigid idea of what a trans person is? Like, and to say that, that this rigid idea applies to all people. Who, who have issues with who they are or issues with their sexuality or issues with gender identity. Like, they, there's clearly a spectrum here. And the spectrum not, not only not, not only is there a spectrum, but, you know, one of the objectives of modern feminism, of modern-day feminism, was to expand the range of how women could express themselves that they didn't have to have long hair and makeup on and wear high heels, that they could have a masculine component to them and cut their hair short and wear jeans and play sports. And that's why a lot of feminists feel like this. there's this kind of incursion into womanhood where now the idea is if you're if that's the form of expression that you find as a female that you ought to be encouraged to identify as a trans man instead of just kind of a center, uh, you know, masculine of center of female. But I think, you know, one of the things that, that concerns me about it and that always strikes me so much is, you know, as I mentioned, like one of the formative political experiences of, of my life, obviously, was growing up gay in the 80s and into the 90s where there were lots of debates about they were raging about what is the role of homosexuality and how should it be viewed by civic society and by government and by law. And one of the reasons why gay people largely won that 
that debate and not just won it, but won it so radically and so rapidly is because we were constantly looking for ways to engage that discussion with people who hadn't been persuaded. I mean, I remember I would all the time, you know, if I heard someone say, well, how does this work in your relationship? Like, who is the man and who's the woman and how do you fuck? And instead of saying like, you're a disgusting bigot and how dare you and condemn them and denounce them and banish them away, I would be eager to engage in that discussion as were so many people. And that's what ultimately changed minds was the more you engage people, the more you persuade them, the more you convince them, the more you explain to them why these radical social changes that you advocate are justifiable, the harder it is to demonize you and to feel alienated by you and to be, feel repelled by you. You break down that dehumanization through engagement, through discourse and dialogue, not through demanding and coercing and trying to force people to accept views that they don't yet hold. And so many current social movements are based on that kind of tyranny of either you affirm these truths as I see them, or you're going to be punished and scorned. Yes. There's no debate or engagement or questioning permitted. Yeah, that's, that's a really accurate way of depicting it. And it's, uh, it's confusing. I mean, it's, uh, it's confusing for people that don't want to be punished. And so they, they adhere to these opinions too. They just, they just jump on board, you know, uh, and, and, and I had a, I had a conversation with a friend. We was talking about how, uh, being trans is more accepted in other countries. And he brought up Iran and I said, but do you know why there's so many trans people in Iran? It's because if you're gay, they'll put you in jail. Like, do you, do you understand that? Like in, in some countries in the Middle East, they literally, you have no options. Like if you're a homosexual and you want to be with men and you happen to be a man, many of them choose to become women just so that they can have these relationships that they want. Like it's, it's a r real weird box. And I think ideologically, when you force someone to have an opinion that you hold and punish them, for just even questioning things. You, you create this really weird scenario that we find ourselves in right now. And to the point where oftentimes biological women are the ones that, especially when it comes to sports, they're the ones that are the victims of this ideology. When you have tr track and field athletes who are competing as female, who all they have to do is identify in, in certain high schools as being female. They don't even necessarily have to have gender reassignment surgery or, or even to take estrogen. And it's, it's crazy. But if you, if you question it, you're a bigot. And these, there's a reason why we've had male and female sports that men and women don't compete against each other. It's because we've agreed, okay, uh, there are obviously huge differences between men uh, there's a spectrum of, you know, there's, there's very athletic men, non-athletic men, and a huge spectrum of women, very athletic women and non-athletic women. But we agree that it seems to be a big advantage to be male when it comes to physical sports. So we're going to separate them. But if you have male versus female sports, as long as the male identifies as a female, we're supposed to go, well, you know, what are you going to do? It's okay. You know what's amazing? You know what's amazing? Um, one of my childhood hero heroes growing up uh, was the tennis player Martina Navratilova. Yes. And I 
which is a weird childhood hero for me to have for a lot of different reasons. It's just not an obvious childhood hero for me to have. Like Dan Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers leaker, is a much more obvious one who was mine. But she was a, a weird one. And, and But I, I was obsessed with her. You know, I used to watch her tennis matches against Chris Everett religiously. And when I grew up, and, 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 and actually when I started doing the Snowden reporting, she started following me on Twitter. And then I remember like the first time she ever sent me a tweet, I acted like some, you know, 12 year old whose favorite <laughs> boy band had, you know, like touched their skin or something. I called my friends all giddy. I talk to famous people all the time. I don't give the slightest shit, but with her, I was just like overwhelmed. And so one of my friends said, you know, that's so fascinating how important she is to you. Why is that? And I started thinking about it. And so I was going to do a film about it. And I like partnered with, with Reese Witherspoon. She was going to produce it. She was very into it and we had a big budget for it. And then right in the middle, as we were getting ready to kind of do the project, and the project was going to be, you know, examining why she was so important to me, what it said about her life and mine and how it intersected in the ability of people in very unpredictable ways to influence others. She had this huge controversy where, you know, Martina was like, you know, she was one of the great pioneers of female athletics. And Sports Illustrated did a list of the 100 greatest athletes of the 20th century. She was number 19, you know, like right behind Joe Montana, head of Ty Cobb. I mean, she was a huge, important figure in female athletics and professional female sports. And she fought, you know, for years along with like Billie Jean King and Chris Everett to ensure that women had massive prize money on the on, on par with men. And sponsorship opportunities. So her life's work has been ensuring that women could make a huge living and be justly rewarded on equal terms with male athletes. So she was on Twitter and she saw some photo of a trans woman who had just won a cycling race. And she was in the middle, the trans woman was next to two cis women and she was hovering over them with like this huge muscle mass that these two women didn't have with the gold medal smiling with the arms around these two women. And Martina learned that the woman who won the gold medal had not had any gender reassignment surgery, meaning she still has a penis and her testicles and therefore the ability to impregnate a woman. And Martina went on Twitter and just very innocently said, wait, I don't understand if a woman, if a man declares themselves to be a woman, they can now compete in professional sports, the professional sports that I worked so hard my whole life to build, and they can win all the prize money and all the, 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 the trophies, and then just decide to go back to living as a man, impregnate women, and live as a, a suburban life as the father of children. That doesn't seem fair. And she was fucking mauled for it. And people were saying, you're ignorant. You have to, it doesn't matter if you have a penis. What matters is if, you, is if you go through hormonal treatments that render your body uh, anatomically or biologically identical for purposes of athletics to the male body um, or the female body, the, the cis female body. And she said, okay, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to delete my tweet. I'm going to go and research this. I shouldn't have spoken about it without first studying it. And that didn't stop them for three weeks, four weeks, they were, Martina Navratilova is a bigot, she's hateful, and not only was she, you know, a pioneer of women's athletics, she was one of the only openly gay celebrities on the planet yeah. in the late 1970s, early 1980s, which was one of, the, one of the reasons why she was my hero. She also hired a trans coach, Dr. Renee Richards, who she traveled the world with and put on national TV, you know, like BBC and NBC during Wimbledon would have to say, 
there's Martina Navratilova's box. That's her coat. Her name used to be Richard Raskin. It's now Dr. Renee Richards, you know, and kind of glide over it. But at least, like, she did more for trans visibility than almost anybody. Martina went away, but because she was being so mauled and with no understanding, she came back, she wrote an op-ed in the Sunday Times, and she said, I've studied this, and what I've concluded is that there is never a way that somebody who's gone through puberty as a male, no matter how many hormones that they take, can render their body similar to a female body such that competing with naturally born females can be anything other than cheating. And for that opinion... Martina Navratilova, who did more for LGBT visibility, trans visibility, female athletics, got expelled, literally expelled from LGBT athletic athlete groups. Um, and I couldn't, I ended up not being able to make my film because the director that we had was a trans woman who didn't feel comfortable and felt like the whole film had gotten too complicated. Um, it's amazing that if you're, I mean, if, if, if the enemy of your movement is Martina Navratilova, if that's somebody that you're declaring to be a hateful bigot, not welcome in decent company, who are your fucking allies? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting proving ground for this ideological dilemma, right? Female sports. Because, uh, you know, I, my friend Tony Hinchcliffe actually has a comedy bit about this. He's like, you don't see a whole lot of women declaring themselves to be biologically male and then competing against men. It's, it's trans women that are competing in these sports and dominating them. Um, I got into the fray uh, unwittingly because there was a, a, a female MMA fighter that didn't tell her opponents that she was male for 30 years. And uh, started competing two years after transitioning. And I was like, this is fucking crazy. Because now you're, you're in my wheelhouse. And I, I didn't mean to get into the friend. I'd never really had opinions on trans people other than do whatever you want to do as long as you're an adult. Um, but then when, once that came up and I was uh, attacked for it, I was like, this is the hell I'll die on. Because you people are out of your fucking mind. I'm a martial arts expert. I know what I'm talking about. Like the, the difference between the way a man can generate power and a woman is really significant. It's a big difference. All the, the, the ability to be violent, reaction time, uh, coordination, shape of the hips, shape of the shoulders, size of the hands. There's so many big differences. And people were unwilling to budge. They, they wanted to look at this in terms of this, uh, you, you must be a bigot if you, you feel this way. And I'm like, no, I'm not. A, well, I'm not. and like, it's 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 so it's so it's so obvious that there are complex scientific questions. Like, I don't know how I feel about it, in part because I don't understand the science well enough, and I don't believe the science has offered definitive answers. Like, maybe there are hormonal protocols that you can take for a long enough period of time. Maybe there are new hormonal treatments that are being developed that can actually make it roughly fair and can turn a body that was born biologically male into the equivalent of a female body sufficient to make it a fair competition. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, maybe someday. But the, right, but like, or maybe now, I don't know. I mean, I like, you know, women's tennis, um, you know, if you win the US Open or Wimbledon in women's tennis, you're going to win the prize is now $4 million, right? Like the, the Williams sisters are among the, the richest athletes on the planet. If it were that easy for a male tennis player to just go win that amount of money by declaring himself a female, they would be doing it and we don't really see that. So I'm open to the question of whether this can be done fairly, but to declare the question itself off limits 
exactly. and force everybody to just accept it. That's that. And, and, and like the thing is, it's not just like we're talking about it in this issue because I know you've had issues with it. I've had my own experiences with it with that film. But this is the mentality that is replicating itself in issue after issue after issue. Yes, and I, w- I want to be really clear. One of the things that I've said is I have no problem with a woman choosing to compete against a trans woman if she knows that it's a trans woman. My, my issue is entirely that this person decided that it was a, a medical issue and that she did not have to disclose that she was a male for 30 years and it just recently transitioned to being a woman. And I'm, I, uh, that's where I stepped in. I said, this is bullshit because there's rules on taking steroids, right? It's, it's illegal. They test. So if someone took right. steroids for 30 years, for 30 years took the equivalent of a male body's steroids and worked out constantly, lifted weights and did so to the point where it changed their anatomy and then choose to get off the steroids and then compete, I guarantee you, everyone would be saying, that person's a cheater, they shouldn't be allowed to compete because that person changed their body through illegal means. That's just a fact. I'm, I'm in favor of anybody doing anything as long as all the information's on the table. If a woman chooses to compete against a trans woman, uh, in mixed martial arts and and knows in advance, I'm 100% in favor of that. I have no problem with it. Look, women have fought men before. Some really talented. There's a woman who competes in um, in the UFC, Jermaine Durandamy. She's a multiple uh, world champion in Muay Thai, and she fought a man and knocked him unconscious in a fight. And you can watch it on YouTube. She's an amazing athlete, an amazing fighter. But she chose to fight that man, knowing that he's a man and knowing that her skills were enough that she had a, a reasonable chance and, and actually did win. I'm 100% in favor of that. Like, I'm in favor of everybody doing anything that's dangerous. Do whatever you want. I'm in favor of people yeah. riding motorcycles without a helmet. I'm in favor of you bungee jumping. You choose whatever you want. You're an adult. But, yeah. but the idea that this person didn't have to disclose that she was a man for 30 years was very offensive to me. And that, that was your entree into this controversy. That's how I got into it. That's how I got into it. I'm like, this yeah. is crazy. Well, not only that, the, the damages to her opponents were really significant. Fractured skull. Like she, she's broke the bones in her face. Like it was, it's like real big stuff. It's not, it wasn't a small deal. And if you watch the fight, right. it's horrific. I mean, I think, I think like ultimately it, it, it kind of ties back to what you were saying earlier about human beings oftentimes evolving in ways that are seemingly inexplicable. One of the things that makes life interesting, that makes the world worth investigating are these complexities. I mean, gender is and how it relates to biology and how it shapes our identity and what different hormones can do externally injected into our bodies these are fascinating questions that we don't really have clear answers for and that's true regardless of almost any debate that you choose and that's what i was saying earlier is that you know if you look at newtonian physics people for a long time believed that that was the ultimate truth and then that becomes something that people realize actually has fundamental errors i mean you have to like what always amazes me about not just people who support censorship but about people who want to close off debate or who say that it's immoral to even speak to people who have views that are sufficiently different that they're supposed to be radioactive is what always amazes me is the level of hubris needed to believe 
not just that you're right about something, because I believe I'm right about a lot of things, but to believe that you're so right that your view should never, should not be even permitted to be questioned, let alone rejected or negated or refuted, and that people who have different views than you are people that you should never be willing. It's such a glum, grim, bleak, depressing view of the world and it's authoritarian and tyrannical as well to just constantly be flattening all of the complexities of life that make things interesting to explore and debate and discuss and think about. Yeah, it, it really is complex and it really is interesting. And, and I agree with you. And I hope that one day we can get past all this stuff. And I think because it's such and it, it's really weird that it's so fresh in our culture that, I mean, being trans has been around for a long, long time. But for whatever reason, it's dominated the zeitgeist over the last, you know, decade or so. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't really know what's happening. You know, Douglas Murray has a very interesting take on it. He, you know, I was talking to him and he was saying that towards the end of uh, civilizations, when civilizations are starting to collapse, one of the things that happens is, is blurring the lines of, of genders and he's like I, I don't know what that is or why that exists but it, he said it existed in ancient Greece and ancient Rome and I wonder I wonder if that's uh, just it's just a, a, a natural course of progression that civilizations go through when the wheels are falling off um, that they get obsessed with these uh, subjects but obviously these are very interesting things to discuss and talk about um, it just because you discuss and talk about them doesn't make you a bigot and I think that we have to make that distinction because if we don't make that distinction, you're, you're always going to have people that are speaking about it one way publicly, as you were saying with your friends, uh, or, or yeah. privately, excuse me, and then another way publicly where they're just they're well, and that, that's why I think I think that if you if you're somebody who has been fortunate enough to construct a platform that is secure and relatively immune from being canceled or being you know declared off limits um i mean people have certainly been trying with me for many years and and i think they're starting to reach the conclusion that it's futile and they're never going to be rid of me so i think if you're able to kind of create an independent platform for yourself one of the obligations that i do think you have is to create that space and kind of take those arrows so that other people who don't enjoy that same independence, that same security, feel at least marginally freer to, you know, wander around and asking. Yeah. Um, it, look, discussions are important. It's how we figure things out. Talking about things is important. I need to know how you think to be able to consider it. When, when I talk to someone, whether it's you or anyone, I, I want to know how you feel about things genuinely. And when you're terrified to express your honest opinion because you're worried about the blowback, then I'd never really know, uh, not only do I never know who you really are and how you really think, I never know that there's people who think the way you think because you don't express it. And then we have a distorted perception of the landscape. And it's, it, it, it takes too long to work through ideas and problems that we have in our society. I, I, I understand why people would be protective of trans people, of anybody, and any, any maligned, any, any marginalized group. I understand it. I, to, I totally do. But to discuss it, 
does not mean bigotry. It just doesn't. And when you're talking about sports, whether it's when, when you decide that Martina Navratilova is a bigot, you've got a real problem. You fucked up. Like there's there's something. Yeah, wrong yeah. What if something went really wrong in the up. Matrix? Yeah, the Matrix yeah. produced a, a a very erroneous outcome there. Um, and I, you know, I I I I I, re- I you know I think part of the the problem though is that there whoever does wield this ability to impose orthodoxies has a certain form of power. There's a lot of power that comes from that, from forcibly suppressing views that you've declared to be erroneous. And that is why I think it becomes addictive, especially when it starts to become a form of mob behavior. Um, but, you know, this this ability to, to, to engage in dialogue, you know, I, I go on Fox News a lot. I go on Tucker Carlson specifically quite a bit. And obviously people who are long-term readers of mine who are on the left, a lot of them are befuddled by that, if not enraged by it. And one of the things that has happened because I do that is that I get emails all the time from people saying, um, well, for a decade I always thought you were this insane leftist. I thought you were you know, a communist. I thought you hated the United States. I never paid any attention to anything that you said. But now that I hear you on the show saying things that I trust, I'm now listening to anything that you say with an open mind because I believe that you're honest. And it doesn't mean that I now agree with you on everything you're saying. I don't. I still disagree with it. But at least I've like forged a channel of communication with people who I might have written off before as some kind of a character or who have written me off before as some kind of a character like I did with you. Someone had asked me two years ago before I actually listened to your show, you know, what do you think of Joe Rogan? I probably would have said I don't know much about him, but I know he talks to like a lot of alt-right assholes and fascists and seems to hate trans people because that's what I had been told, right? That was like in the ether. And so that's what I absorb. And I, you know, I think that, you know, everybody loves to lament, you know, polarization and strife and conflict in the world and aggression and war, which are all terrible things. And yet one of the only solutions we have as human beings to any of that is the ability to try and speak to each other as humans past our differences so that we can at least develop a common respect that enables us to navigate those differences without resorting to force. And this is more and more what is being written off this, this, climate of censorship and repression is doing damage to every single one of our institutions. And um, I don't see it ending at all. I see it growing. And, and I, I don't really quite know um, how it can be arrested. Well, I'm hoping there'll be a tipping point and I'm hoping the tide will pull back. And I'm hoping that podcasts and long form communication and conversations like this will be a part of that. But, uh, I, you know, I agree with you. And when you say you, you don't agree with everything I say. I, I'm happy because I don't agree with everything I say. There's a lot of shit. Well, look, we're, we're thinking in real time. And sometimes yeah. I'll say something on a podcast and then I'll think about it, you know, an hour later. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck was I saying? Why, why did I even think about it that way? Because you're talking, you know, like right now. Like, I don't know the next word out of my fucking mouth. Right. Uh, this is what podcasts are. This is what these things are. And sometimes you're going down roads or you express an opinion. And it's not that thought out. 
And that's the danger of these weird long-form communications, these unstructured podcasts are. But that, that's also why it's interesting to people because it's so, it's so raw. Because y you know this isn't – there's no strategy here. There's no – this isn't – this hasn't been planned out. There's no, there's no adherence to a script. And through that, you get a sense of humans. You get a, because this is how people think and talk in real life, you know, and most of the yeah, process. You, 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 talk in, you, you talk in uncertainties, right? Yes. Like that, and that I think is a big difference is, you know, if you go on cable, if I go on cable, some, any show, or even like some Sunday news show here in Brazil or in the U.S., Everyone knows in advance what's going to be said. I know what I'm going to be asked. They know what I'm going to answer. And they're inviting me on specifically because they know I'm going to say something with certainty. Yeah. Right? I'm not going to go on and say, I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. Because if you do that, you're not fulfilling your function. That is not the normal way that people navigate through the world with certainties. They navigate it with uncertainties. They have an opinion one minute and then they listen to somebody who persuades them to think differently another and then they kind of move in that direction and then maybe they move a little bit back. But the yeah. problem is that in a climate where if you're not constantly affirming unequivocally what has deemed to be what is deemed to be the mandatory opinions, you really can not if you're a coward, but just if you're rational, create a lot of problems for yourself and your work and your society, in your culture, um, and that's why people avoid it. Yeah, and that's why I've gravitated towards it. Ironically, um, I, I think that you have to talk to people that you disagree with. You have to talk to people, and I, I also. I'm not married to my ideas. If you tell me, if I have a specific notion in my mind about the way something works and I talk to you, I, I am happy when you can get me to change my mind. I, I enjoy it. I don't believe any of the things that I, I espouse or that I, um, I'm locked into that these are chiseled in stone. I mean, there's a few I believe in that I'll, uh, that where I'm a legitimate expert in, but very few. Most of the things... I'm open to someone correcting me. I like that. I'm also interested in how people think incorrectly. Um, if I'm talking to, like, I don't have as many alt-right assholes, as you say, as, on the podcast anymore. I, mean, I, I kind of grew tired right. of it. You know, like, but, yeah. but, but I had a lot in the earlier days. Maybe even before I understood what the podcast really was becoming. I just wanted to talk to them, like see how they feel about things. And some of them, I, right. you know, I've, like Milo, I always found humorous. I think he's he's kind of a character. And if you talk to him uh, off air, he's a very different human being. They talk to him on yep. air. He's very easy to communicate yeah. with. Very yeah, it's a character. He yeah. play, He's playing a character. He created a character yeah. that, that did well. I mean, I'm sure some of it has uh, some root in reality, but he's a provocateur. Uh -huh. But yeah, I... I want to know why people make these jumps and why they think the way they think. And with a lot of them, uh, what they're doing is signaling to this group that they've gotten support from that they're on that, that side. They're, uh, they're doing this thing where they're, uh, they're, they're saying words and expressing themselves in certain ways that they know that certain groups are going to go, oh, he's on board. He's on this team. He's saying all the things that I want to hear, and then which is which is a very which is a very natural human yes. desire, yes, right? We is. we are social animals, yeah. 
and we evolved in tribes, yeah. right? And being scorned by a group or not belonging to a group right. wasn't just unpleasant and didn't just produce unhappiness. It could actually jeopardize your survival, right. you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. But even now, we still need to belong. Yeah. But like with any instinct, we have to kind of purposely combat it, right? Like we might have an instinct to kill people that we feel angry toward, but we combat that instinct because it produces bad outcomes. So the tribalism in us, you know, is probably something that sometimes occasionally is healthy. It makes us be part of communities and the like, and that fulfills psychological necessities, but it can lead us really astray too. And you have to kind of be willing sometimes if you're feeling embraced too much by a group to kind of give them something almost to show you that you're not attached to it and to show yourself that you're not attached to it so you don't become captive to it. Well, I think we have to be really careful in how we lean into love. And what I mean by that is lean into uh, praise, lean into uh, attention, lean into like there's a lot of people that become uh, a victim of their own audience. And because if you're if you're a rebellious sort, right, if you've got this idea that goes against the mainstream, the other people that like things that go against the mainstream, they're very vocal about it. They're very excited by it. And their attention to you is magnified. It's much different than the attention that you get if you sort of support the mainstream. You support the mainstream, it's a very, eh, it's a, a lukewarm Yeah, you just reception. blend in. You, you blend, blend in. Yes. Yeah, you blend, you blend in. in. But you're like you're, a CNN correspondent. If you're Milo or one of these people that was becoming very successful being one of these provocateurs in the past, you get a rabid response where people are so excited to see you. And then you see, I've seen it with comedians, um, where they'll, they'll tell jokes that like uh, a certain group of people like, and they'll lean into that. Like, you know, they'll become like a right-wing comic because these right-wing people are the ones that have given them attention. And they, they know when they're saying things, even if they don't understand that it's disingenuous or that they're, they're, they're playing a character, they are, they are saying it knowing that it's going to get this disproportionate reaction from that group. And they lean into it. And uh, one of the reasons why I, I like talking to people like that is cause I wanted to see that thing in them. I wanted to, I wanted to hear what they're saying, that even if I disagree with it. I want to know what, what makes them think that way. Why do they go this way? What, what, it, what about them is, 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 is what, what, what gravity has pulled them in this direction? It's weird. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the argument is that as your platform grows and you become more influential, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, by putting someone on your show who advocates ideas that are harmful or toxic or hateful, even if you're doing it just to satisfy your curiosity and not because you actually agree with them, that you're nonetheless still letting millions of people be exposed to hearing them speak for two or three hours in a way that kind of signals that, that at the very least their ideas are worth listening to, whether that's your intention or not with the message that you're conveying. I agree with that criticism. I really do. And that's one of the reasons why I've avoided uh, a large number of those people that do have very questionable belief systems and, and, and do espouse hate. There's a lot of fucking assholes that want to be on this show that I haven't had on for that very reason. Yeah. But there's some that I find interesting, you know, and uh, the, the, I, it's not because of hate. It's because 
some of them have ideas that are at least mildly intriguing. And I, I'm over that now, but when I was interviewing a lot of those people in the past, the one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to try to hear what they're saying and poke holes in it. And I wanted to I wanted to know why they lean so hard in this direction and what is about and it's like when you're talking to anyone that's really into anything, but you could fill in the blank with whatever the subject is. There there's certain aspects of them where you're talking to them and you go, oh, I've seen you before. I know what I I know a lot of people like you. I know Mm -hmm. I know what you're doing. You've found like this real, you know, how some songs sound real similar. Like, oh, you were a fan of Stone Temple Pilots, and you guys right. have sort of built like you get that with them. They have this sort of way of well, you know, the left has this view of things, and the left, and they they start talking like a pundit. They start talking like someone who they've seen be successful with these ideas, and it's it's intriguing to me. So as a as a person, like as a comic, you always have to be sort of a student of of human beings and behavior and thoughts. That's that's what comedy's all about. It's analyzing those things and poking holes in them. And when I see someone that is really into any weird or or any 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 like real clear ideology. With, like I feel that way about like super duper lefties. Like I've had some like b- blind ideological lefties on my show before too. Where if, uh-huh. if we wrote down, if we had a column, what do you agree with and disagree with? I would have way more on the agree with column with them than I do on the disagree with. But the disagree ones are so they're so blatant sometimes. Where I'm like, you haven't thought about this shit at all. You just don't want to oppose it because if you know if you oppose it, you'll be out of the club. Like Martina Navratilova. Right, who, you know, I think in retrospect, the reason why she was my childhood hero was precisely because she was always so fucking defiant and transgressive, you know. Um, And and probably why she was so competitive, too. Oh, for sure. I mean, she just, like, was constantly... And, you know, like, she didn't give a shit about what she was told about how females were supposed to look. She spent hours in the gym building this huge muscle mass, which made her physically dominant. You know, whatever categories he tried to impose on her were ones that she just disregarded. That was just the nature of her personality. And in that lies a, a lot of power and a lot of freedom. And in reality, that's the same thing that led her, even though it made a lot of, it converted a lot of her former fans into enemies into challenging these pieties about trans issues, right? Is if you tell Martina, you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to think this and you're not allowed to say that, she's going to make a beeline exactly toward those things. That's why she fucking fled communist Czechoslovakia, right? Was because they were telling her, just don't do anything to draw attention to yourself. And she knew that was going to limit her greatness as an athlete and her greatness as a human being. Um, And, you know, that's like... That ultimately, I think that, you know, it's so easy to, a lot of times people adopt a certain posture, then they show you, you know, as you were saying, that kind of pundit voice, or if they go on a show where they get to speak for nine minutes instead of two and a half hours, they're manipulating their image on purpose. And the more that you dig into it, the deeper you dig into it, the more you kind of try and excavate what really is underneath it. A lot of times you uncover truths that you wouldn't have previously seen about who they really are and what they really think and someone who seems like they're hateful really isn't a lot of times though they are yeah um a lot of times they are and a lot of times they've become that because that's uh 
that's been the way they get the best attention or the most attention. Or, you know, sometimes they'll pretend to not be that way, to sort of weasel their way in. And then once they become popular, you find out, oh, you really do have nefarious ideas. You really are a shithead. You know, and right. I, and I understand. But, you, but the only way you know is if you talk to them, right? Yes. Like, if yes. you just ignore them, they don't disappear. Yeah. And I, I understand people's concern with platforming those people. But I, I really I do think that you have to talk to a wide group of people to get an, an understanding of humans. And uh, if you don't know any hateful people, you won't be able to recognize hateful behavior, like really recognize it. I think you have to see it. You have to talk to them. And, you know, if you don't know, I mean, you have to really understand loving, compassionate, generous people. You have to be around them. You have to hear them talk. And, and when you are around them and you do hear them talk, you, you, it changes your perspective on what's possible with people. You, you, you recognize, like, oh, that's a kind of person, too. Like, I, my, one of my friends is Justin Wren. He's a... It's a very unlikely story, but he's a guy who was bullied when he was a child, like horribly to the point where he was suicidal, became a UFC fighter. Um, and now he runs a charity called Fight for the Forgotten, where he builds uh, wells for the pygmies in the Congo. He is the nicest, most charitable human being I've ever met in my life. He's so kind and so gentle and so sweet. And it goes to the Congo and spends months out of the year there. He's gotten malaria three times. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, until I met him, until I've spent tons of time with him and talked to him, I, I didn't know that someone was that selfless, that someone could be mm -hmm. that kind and gentle, but yet also be an elite mixed martial arts fighter and an enormous, uh -huh, uh -huh. An enormous man. I mean, he's such a contradiction, yeah. but he's so kind. He's so nice. I mean, to everyone. I've been around him. He's just so sweet to everyone. And you need to know that there's a guy like that out there. When I, whenever I think about people, about kindness and about, uh, about generosity, selflessness, I think of that guy because I know he's real, because I know him. He's changed my spectrum, like the spectrum of what's right. possible in people. Well, you know, we started off talking about, uh, about Snowden, right? And, yes. and um, you know, as a journalist, people expect me to just keep this critical distance of him from him as, you know, the way you're supposed to talk about your source when you're a journalist and, and almost in every speech that I give. And, you know, obviously Snowden is not just a source to me. He's a very close friend and someone I care a huge amount about. We went through something really intense and extraordinary together that will bond us, you know, for life and, and after even. Um, but it's I feel this exactly the same way. You know, we were talking about how exceptional of an example it is what he did and he shows you a kind of human possibility that you don't previously know exists that then starts opening up your own conception of what's possible in terms of your own choices in life and you only can have that happen if you're willing to connect with people who aren't like you yeah and you i mean one of the beautiful things about these long-form conversations is that you can allow someone to express themselves without restraint and you can find out what's really going on and you you know you can expose people this way in a way that i mean i i think people have been exposed on my podcast in a way where if someone really wants to know who they are they can go watch a clip and they'll go oh this is what happens when this motherfucker hits the fire like they fall apart like this is what happens when their ideas are challenged this is what happens when someone says why do you think that 
And what makes you, what make, why do you say that? Why are you saying it that way? And you let them, give them all the rope in the world, and then you see them hanging. And it, because you can't, you, can't, you can't control yourself for three hours. You know, right. it's kind of like, I've had this experience before, I don't know if you've, you've had this where, you know, if, if a magazine wants to profile you, they'll send a reporter to follow you around for a week. Because if you just sit down for a 40 minute interview or an hour interview, you can be very controlling about what it is that you present and what you let them see. But if they start riding in the car with you when you're driving your kids to school or going out to dinner with you, you start forgetting that it's an interview and you start thinking about this person as just someone who's in your life that you're talking to and you end up saying things that if you were being completely controlled, you never would have said the same, just experiencing this now doing your show you know, most shows are at most 45 minutes at most, right? Where you can just get through it and be very conscious of every word here when you have no, you know, I, there's your producer doesn't say what you want to talk about ahead of time. I had no idea what we were going to talk about ahead of time. It just kind of meanders into this natural space. And you do forget that you're being recorded. You do forget that a lot of people are going to see it, which is a very liberating feeling to have right because you don't have to use that voice that public voice that you feel compelled to use if you're being too self-conscious about the fact that you're being watched and listened to it's sort of like how being surveilled and monitored alters your behavior right if you know that you're being watched and are conscious of it your range of choices that you're willing to engage in diminishes greatly that's why privacy and having a private realm is so important that's where creativity and dissent reside same thing here it's like if you do a format and you kind of like let yourself free unconstrained with the knowledge that you're actually in an interview that people are going to be watching you just end up speaking much more naturally much more freely and don't monitor every word yeah and by the way this was not by design i can't take credit for the fact that uh this podcast is that sort of thing uh i just didn't want to edit it like this is one of my good fr- <laughs> one of my good friends, and I enjoy talking to people. One of my good friend Ari Shafir is one of his uh, worst and most famous pieces of advice to me. He's like, "You got to edit your podcast." I go, "Why?" He goes, "No one wants to listen to it for that long." I go, "Well, then they don't have to listen." I'm like, "I don't give a fuck." Yeah, your your sloth yeah. produced um, some really <laughs> positive. That's literally what it is. But uh, I, yeah. I want to speak about what you were just saying because there's a great example of that, and that's Michael Hastings, um, where he was trapped. Uh, was it Iraq or Afghanistan where he was trapped? Afghanistan. 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 He was trapped over there because of the volcano in Iceland? Is that where it was? I think so. I, th- I don't remember the details. There it's was, been a long time. Well, there was a, vo- a volcano erupted, and it prohibited yeah. air travel. And during right. that time, he was embedded with the troops, and um, they were communicating in a way that was uh, – got, they got way too comfortable with him. And he – they, I guess they thought with General McChrystal, yes. with General McChrystal, yes. yeah. And General McChrystal said some disparaging things about Barack Obama and wound up being fired. And then, uh, you know, Hastings was terrified for his life and wound up in this really weird conspiracy theory scenario where his car goes a hundred miles an hour into a tree and the engine winds up flying away from the car and the car explodes and he dies. And uh, people are speculating, like, was he killed? Did they did they use some sort of uh, software to manipulate his vehicle and have him do that, or was this suicide? And that was, I mean, 
it was a that's a I don't first of all what are your thoughts on that? Did you you know are you like fully aware of that story or have you Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael was it? a pretty good was a pretty good friend of mine. Um I'm a little hesitant to talk too much about it cuz there was like privacy issues with him and his wife, but I will say like his wife was pretty adamant. His wife at first, of course, you know, being a loving wife was very open to the prospect that it wasn't an accident and that somebody had caused his car to crash because he was a great investigative journalist who didn't give the slightest fuck who he was angering, um, as evidenced by the fact that he, he ended General McChrystal's career by publishing the things that he said that were newsworthy and not off the record, which is what a good journalist would do. And he was mauled by other journalists who said, this is a, you know, you're ruining the ability of journalists to get generals to speak freely with you in a war zone. That's not how it works. And he said, General McChrystal wasn't my fucking friend. He was someone really powerful in the military. And my job was to tell the public what he was saying that they had a right to know, which is what he did. That was Michael's personality. But at the same time, Michael ended up for the last six months or a year of his life being pretty troubled, I think in large part because of the trauma he had from spending a lot of time in war zones. I, I know I have a lot of friends who are journalists who have spent time in war zones and almost every single one of them end up fucked up for good reasons. It's a really fucked up thing to see. Yeah. Um, and he had substance abuse issues that he was struggling with. I think the last time I saw Michael actually was in LA just like a week or two before he died. I think it was at Oliver Stone's house or something. And he was definitely, um, inebriated. So, you know, and I know a lot of people were concerned about that. Um, and whether he was kind of engaging in self-destructive behavior. I don't know, Joe, to be honest, but I know that his wife reached the conclusion that, um, she thought those more interesting theories about intrigue and murder was a disservice to his memory for whatever that's worth. Well, I respect that if that's how she felt about it, but the, the real concern that journalists have, and this is what we started off the podcast uh, talking to you about, about your own safety. Um, the Jamal Khashoggi uh, story of course is like the worst example of uh, what could potentially happen to a journalist. And uh, w when we're talking about the, the safety of people who do take the risks to put out information that people want to hear, and then they become the target of very powerful people, um, it's, it's, I mean, it must be one of the most frightening aspects of your job. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we talked about the Snowden case. For me, the much more difficult and dangerous case was the reporting I did last year in Brazil starting in June of 2019, going into the beginning of this year, where we were publishing the hacked telephone conversations of the most powerful people in Brazil and the Bolsonaro government and revealed really serious corruption. And um, it led to the release from prison of the former Brazilian president, Lula da Silva, because we were able to show that his prosecution was corrupt um, and a lot of other pretty destabilizing events. And as a result of that, um, you know, there was a huge right, there's a huge right wing movement in, in Brazil that elected Bolsonaro and that is a really kind of, 
you know, they're all armed. Um, they believe in the military dictatorship. They have the police and the intelligence agencies on their side. Um, and the type of threats that we were getting, and it also had related a lot as well to my husband. My husband is a member of Congress. He's a socialist member of Congress, the only openly gay member of the Brazilian Congress in a country where Bolsonaro has stimulated a lot of anti-LGBT animus as a powerful political tool. Um, we haven't left our house in about a year and two months without armed guards and armored vehicles because the level of specificity of the threats that we get um, with people who know our address and send pictures of our cars with the license plates to be as terrorizing as possible are really severe. Um, and, you know, for about six months every day on Twitter, in Brazilian Twitter, my name was at the top of the trending topics. Glenn is a traitor. Deport Glenn. Glenn belongs in prison. And they did try, actually, at the beginning of this year. They indicted me criminally. And a judge threw it out on free press grounds. But that's just part of the job, you know. And that was what made Michael such a great journalist, was he was fearless when it came to those kinds of things. Um, and that's why when I go and give speeches and then, you know, some in the Q&A part of the event, some journalists student or someone thinking about going to journalism ask me what my advice is for them that's what i tell them i say first of all don't go into the profession unless you think you have something unique to offer because if you don't then it's kind of just worthless you're just going to be a drone in the beehive you know like you were saying earlier you're just going to fade into the mainstream but the other thing i say is if this is if you have a desire to be beloved by powerful people or to be safe this is definitely the wrong profession for you. It's only worthwhile, journalism is, if you're exposing exactly that information which the people who wield the greatest power most desperately want to be concealed. That's your job. And if you do that, like, you know, everyone loves to talk about speaking truth to power and confronting power, but we like people very rarely talk about what that means. What is power and what does it mean for people to be powerful? It's really simple. Ultimately, like what it means to be powerful is that you have the ability to bestow rewards on people who serve your interests and to inflict punishment and pain on those who impede them or defy them. That's all really, that's really all it means to be powerful. And so if you're really a journalist and you're really challenging power, defying it, or impeding the agenda of the powerful, you're inherently going to be in danger. That's just intrinsic to the job. And I think that you pretty much need to have either the kind of personality that in some way seeks that for whatever reasons, or at least feels like the cause is just enough and righteous enough that you're willing to subject yourself to it. I'm certain that through your work, you've inspired other people to get into journalism. I'm certain. And, and I, I wondered what, what does that feel like to you? Cause there has to be young people that have read your work and seen what you've done and seen the documentary with Snowden and, and, and heard you speak that say, I want that courage of conviction. I want to be that person. I want to be that person that does express myself honestly and bravely and, and expose the world to these truths that uh, the powers that be want hidden. I mean, it sounds, you know, banal probably, but honestly, there's nothing more gratifying to me than that because that's how I feel like I'm actually making a mark on the world and changing it in a positive way. However limited that might be, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's, I do hear that a lot. And um, 
the fact that it's not just that I'm inspiring to some someone to go into journalism. It's that I'm inspiring them to go into journalism to do the kind of journalism that I've done and shown them by example can be done and have advocated for. And so it makes me feel like I'm almost like reproducing, you know, like a little army of, you know, when you hear from like a 22 year old who says that you are the one who has shaped what they want to do in life and they kind of want to follow in your example, it's so rewarding. You know, you yeah. feel like you've touched somebody and, and 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 shown them something inside of themselves, a power, an ability, or a talent, or a purpose that they might not have discovered, and it's incredibly fulfilling. It's a huge responsibility too, well, but yeah, that to me is what's exciting about the future. I'm hoping that th there are enough young people that do see that, like you can be one of those people that just drowns into the hive, or you could be like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. It is possible. And that y you will inspire a bunch of people to, to communicate and to express themselves the way you do so fearlessly. I'm hoping the same can be said about podcasts. I'm hoping the same can be said about a lot of independent media, that there's enough of us out there that, that don't want to blend into the hive, that the young people coming up recognize the flaws in these patterns and they recognize the traps that they, they see by becoming a part of these institutions and by becoming a part of these orthodoxies, by becoming a part of these groups that d demand compliance, 100% compliance to their ideology. And they realize, well, that's crazy. That's not how people are. And then there, 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 there's so many pitfalls and, and holes in that, that way of life. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, you, you asked me before, you, I think, made the observation before, you weren't sure what the solution was to these growing pathologies we had been uh, assessing in the discourse and in the political culture. And that was why I pointed to your show, um, just as an example of what I think is possible. But more than that, I think it illustrates this craving that exists that's being unfulfilled by mainstream news outlets, by entertainment products, by really prominent voices there's an unfulfilled craving and what excites me the most about it is that it's not definable by either right or left um i love the people who get confused by the fact that you said that you love bernie and tulsi and that are going to vote for trump and if you're like a political junkie that makes no fucking sense it's like saying two plus two equals five that's not what i and said yet, and that's not what i said well though. you said you you said you love bernie and you love Tulsi, and then when it was Biden and Trump, I think you said you were gonna you prefer Trump because you felt like Biden was cognitively incapable. Yeah, Isn't but, that but I never said I never said I'd vote for Trump. What I said was I would vote for Trump before I'd vote for Biden. I never said I'd vote for Trump. Okay, so that yeah, but, but okay, everybody fair said so, it uh, in the way that oh, you're a Trump supporter now. I'm like that is not what I said. It's not what okay, I said. Okay, good. I'm glad you clarified that because I, I, even I got deceived from that. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, like even that doesn't make sense to people, right? Like, but in the real world, there were millions of people, millions, millions, not hundreds or thousands, but millions who voted twice for Barack Obama and then voted in 2016 for Donald Trump. And if you're 
You know, like somebody who's just a political junkie who sits on political and journalist Twitter all day and sees the world first in like Fox versus MSNBC or Democrat. It doesn't make any sense. But like to most of the people out there, that's not the language they're speaking. And podcasts like the one yeah. you're doing and a lot of other ones, too, are finally speaking in the language of huge numbers of people who never before identified with anything and th I do think that's exciting because it is breaking that mold. That's what's so interesting about it is it's kind of a, just a new, normal, unconstrained and undogmatic way of trying to understand the world. And I, I do find that, in, you know, in, uh, hope inspiring, hope inducing. Yeah, it does come with responsibilities that I never anticipated. And that, that is a, a concern. You know, I, I never thought that I would be influential. I never, I never anticipated it, and I never, uh, I didn't plan for it. You know, it's just like all of a sudden people are like, "What are you doing with your influence?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, fuck, I've got influence." I'm and it's not just cultural influence; it's political influence, yeah. which is like probably even more surprising and like even more of a burden. Well, it's worse because I don't know shit about politics. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've said over and over again: if you're taking your opinions on politics from me you're already fucking up. And I try to offer so many different solutions for so many different people to uh, try to get your information from valid, unbiased political sources like The Hill or Kyle Kalinske or, or Jimmy Dore, many of the other people that I admire. Um, I'm like, go to them. Just don't, don't, don't go to me. I'm not the guy. Yeah. Um, those are all great people to listen to. Um, you know, you can find... I'll, you know, there's like, there are great podcasts now where people are just trying to figure things out. Really smart, interesting, funny people. Um, I love The Hill. I'm on there all the time with, with Sagar and, and Crystal. I know you love, I love them too. They're, um, they're I know. so they're, they're important. They're so important because they're both, they're, they're both on different sides of the fence politically, but they're both honest and objective and they don't agree on things a lot of the time, but they're very respectful they're friendly. They're 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 not impaired by their ideology. They they communicate. I yeah, and they're both kind of the best of their respective sides. I agree. You know, like yes. the so yeah, and 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 obviously Kyle Kolinsky is is you know someone who's built up an, an amazing. I mean, I I know Kyle for years, like when he was just a little kid, you know, and he was just like kind of screaming into a microphone with I think maybe like three thousand views or something, and now he's become this powerhouse. We're um, doing a election so, night show, a live election night show. He and I. Yeah, he mentioned that to me. Tim he said, Dillon. "Don't go on and talk about that because he'll kill me. I'm not allowed to talk about it." So I'm glad you were the one who spilled the beans. <laughs> <laughs> and not me. <laughs> but yeah, he's fantastic. And there's so much new talent like that is discoverable that way. And so, um, you know, I, I like for all the problems and kind of bleak scenarios that we spent a lot of time dissecting, um, it is good to end on a note of figuring out a way out of that. Um, because it's not just some rosy eyed thing that you say to make yourself and others feel better. It's really it's real. Um, and obviously the success of your show, the ridiculous audience size that you have um that grew so organically with no corporate backing is just proof that you know by speaking honestly and without dogma and script you can attract a lot of people yeah and i just want people to know that our concern I, I i do understand that i have an influence now and i i am i'm aware of it you know and that's kept me from having a lot of douchebags on the show uh, and you know <laughs> but unfortunately I, I i think it's important to have some I, I think it's important to have some questionable people i, I think it is i think 
uh, what made the show great is that it's kind of wild and that uh, I talk to people that uh, I want to talk to. And I'm going to continue to do that even if people get mad at who the guests are. There's no way I can, I mean, if I want to talk to somebody, I'm going to talk to them. But I, I am the aware. Minute you start, the minute you start tailoring your guest list to avoid making people angry is the minute you're going to start gutting the thing that has made your show interesting in the first place. Exactly. Right? Which isn't to say that you shouldn't be cognizant of that responsibility that you're now obviously aware of and have described. But, um, you know, there is going in the other direction excessively also. And, and, you know, there's no Joe Rogan podcast if you're not at points making people angry. There's also... I understand that if I do have someone questionable and I have to challenge them on their ideas, I can't just let people just rant and say about anything. If I, if I was, it was just me and my friends like nine years ago, 10 years ago, and we were getting high and sitting around and, and someone would say some crazy shit. I would just start laughing at it. And I didn't think, Oh, this now they think that I'm agreeing with this, what this person's saying. The, just the absurdity of what people were saying would make me laugh. Now I go, oh, Jesus Christ, all these people are listening. I can't just laugh. I can't because I, I, I can't assume people know that I think this is preposterous. I have to jump in now. And I go, okay, wait, what are you saying? There's a giant audience. What, what, why are you saying this? And what do you really believe? Why do you believe that? And that's not true. And this is why it's not true. Like, that's where I understand that I have a responsibility. That I wish, right? I wish sometimes I didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but yeah, but but it, but but you do whether you want it or oh, not. That's no, and I thought, I thought like I thought one really interesting episode that happened recently was that time you was you know maybe like a month ago or six weeks I don't remember exactly when you claimed that what was it that left wing Antifa activists had started some of the fires on the West Coast, which wasn't true. It was an inflammatory claim. And instead of doubling down or justifying why you said it, you immediately issued a statement that was, you know, self-flagellating in its admission of error. It was like, I completely fucked up. I said something reckless. It's, it was so stunning to see because you never, ever, ever see major news outlets doing anything of the sort, even when they say something that's much more destructive, that's false. You know, they'll like stealth edit their errors. They'll add what they call a clarification. Um, everything is just like wormy and designed to avoid just saying like, I fucked up. And ironically, nothing builds confidence in somebody more than acknowledging that in that way, that kind of unflinching way. Like, yeah, I not only fucked up, but I was really reckless in what I did and I'm going to try and avoid doing that again. Well, there was no um, there was no no one telling me to do that. This is one important thing. A lot of people think that Spotify uh, told me to do that. They didn't even know about it. No, this, yeah. I came in and Jamie told me, you know, that thing you said about uh, the left wing people starting forest fires turns out to not be true. And I'm like, fuck, really? And so he shows me this thing and I'm like, uh, well, I read and I, I, I was thinking about all the different people that I read on Twitter that were pointing it out. It turns out there was like one Black Lives Matter uh, protester or activist that was caught lighting fires and most of it was crazy people. And uh, there was a lot of arson, but uh, the, you, it's hard to attribute that to any particular An ideology. ideology. Yes, exactly. So yeah. I said, okay, I fucked up. And I knew also that I was going to go on vacation. I couldn't just let it sit. So I, it, there was no consideration at all. I said, well, what do I do? And Jamie and I were talking about it. I go, I, I, sh I should just make a video 
or I'm just gonna make a video and put it on Instagram. So I just grabbed my phone, I put it in front of my face, I said how I felt, and then I uploaded it. And then I did the podcast. That was it. And I said, that's the only way I, I can do. If I make a mistake, I, I have to correct it. And I'm not, again, I'm not, look, I, I'm gonna make mistakes. I'm not married to my mistakes. I'm not married to anything I've already said. If I made a mistake and I know it's not true, I know I'm incorrect, I must say that I made a mistake. That's we just, all do that. We all do that like 10 minutes ago, right? I like was purporting to describe your perspective about the 2020 election based on what I've heard and, right. you know, around, right? And I misstated it. I described it inaccurately and you interjected and said that's not actually what I said. I wasn't because I was, you know, purposely mischaracterizing it. It's just we're human and we like gather information, especially with the amount of information that, that is surrounding us all the time in an incomplete way or we remember it yes. wrong or we interpret it incorrectly or we process it. I remember Barry Weiss, who I used to be sworn enemies with and now I'm like slowly developing kind of a friendship with her when she was on your show once and she said, um, and I talked to her about this, that she said, you, Tulsi for some reason was brought up and she said, Oh, I don't really like Tulsi. And you said, why not? And she said, because she's a toady of Assad. Yeah. And you said, what? She is? What? Like, what's your basis for that? And she couldn't give you one. She was like, what do you mean? Every That's what people say. Everybody knows that. And it's complete bullshit, right? Like, that right. is something a lot of people say about Tulsi, but there's no basis for that. No matter, and you know, Barry's a very smart person. She's reading constantly. I love her. She has a lot of expertise in those, yeah, in those areas. Um, but you know, she just said something derogatory about someone that was untrue. We all, not because she was deliberate, but because our brains are imperfect. Yes. And if we don't recognize that, um, you know, I don't think we can have any value. No, and that's one of the We're fears. We're just like blowhards. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you can, if you know you fucked up, and then you deny that you know you fucked up. You won't have any self-respect. You you won't you you won't appreciate. You're 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 not going to ever respect yourself. You're you're not going to appreciate your thoughts. You're always going to know you're a phony. Like yeah, because deep down you're going to know. Yeah. Deep down you're you could have doubled down. You could have doubled down and no. said no. Here's someone who said this. Fuck all of you. And you would have been fine. But like deep no. down you would have known that you just like vomited on your integrity. Never. I would never do that. I don't have that. Yeah. Me. I just don't. If I, if I make mistakes, I'm sorry. And if I'm sorry, I say, I'm sorry. It's just how it is. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any other way, but this is uh, that's the only way you get good at things. Um, you know, th this comes from my martial arts background so to get good at martial arts. You can't pretend you're good at things. You have to find out what you're doing wrong and you have to correct it. If you don't correct it, yeah. you, you leave vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities they, they, they equal pain. Like you get hurt. Like you, you, right. you lose, you know, you, you get hit, you get strangled, whatever it is. Um, that applies. That's that, that way of looking at the world because I learned it at such a young age because I grew up doing martial arts. So as I've become an adult, that's what I apply to everything. I don't ever allow myself to bullshit myself and I won't bullshit other people. I'm not interested in it. I don't want anybody to think of me in any way other than who I am. I'm, I'm not interested in publicity. I'm not interested in, in an image. I don't, I don't, I, I am who I am. That's it. And if I fuck up, I tell you, I'm sorry. Right. And do you see, have you, can you think of a time that you've seen the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC News, CNN issue 
an acknowledgement of error yeah, but I even think, remotely in the same universe of, like that. No, but I also think that's a problem when you have an, an enormous organization that thinks about the consequences of an apology and the consequences of admitting error and that, uh, you know, the scrutiny that comes with that of all the other things you've said as well. Like, we don't have an organ. I mean, the, the, our business meeting, our, our, our big uh, sit-down was me literally walking in and talking to my friend Jamie and him showing me this article, and I'm going, shit, I got to say something. All right, let me say something right now. And the whole interaction took three minutes. And then I pull up my phone, and I just make an apology. I mean, I, there's no people to run it by. I don't have to have a, a, a meeting where, you know, the executives sit down and say, listen, this could be very consequential to our ad revenue. This could really become a problem with people respecting your opinion on other things. Just let it go. It'll go away. Don't talk about it. It'll mm -hmm. go away. Um, but the reality is, but the reality is, one derives benefit from doing it. I don't think the reason institutions avoid doing it is because they fear the consequences. Be unless you know it's possible, if you've defamed somebody, then of course you're going to be lawyered up and and be really constrained in what you could say. But uh, absent that, I think the reason is is because they're so. Uh, convinced of their own infallibility and they want to always make sure that they're constantly affirming the fact that they are an institution of authority because they know people are listening yeah. less and less to them. They constantly want to defend their own expertise and saying, Hey, I fucked up Yeah, in the, in their warped, you know, thought process is something that's credibility eroding when in fact it's credibility enhancing. Yeah. I, th I think what you're talking about is the, what the, the issue with their thought process that's really critical because um like i said before I, I i have gone out of my way to make sure that i'm not married to my thoughts uh, and i don't equate me with my ideas uh, i am you know i'm just a human being and my ideas are some things that i embrace or don't and they come in and out and i i i, I have ethics and i have morals and i have values but my ideas what i believe and don't believe uh, especially pertaining to uh, events that I'm not even witness of. I don't, I'm not married to those. I think part of the problem is with many people being right or being wrong becomes a game and they're trying to win that game. It's one of the, the real problems with people when it comes to conversations where they're not, when they're arguing with things, they become married to their ideas and they're not willing to concede that you have good points. Uh, I, I find it a virtue that if you're having a conversation with a person and they say something that shows you right away that you're not correct, to be able to say, oh, yep, you're right. To, say, to be able to say that, because that's yeah, a but, painful but, moment. Yeah. People don't like doing that. It, it's hard. No, it takes courage. It's, it's You have to be vulnerable yes. to do that, right? To say, I fucked up. I was reckless. That's, that's, that's exposing yourself in a very public way. But I, but I think that, you know, because I'm not, I, I'm certainly not the person who does that best. I have difficulty myself, you know, acknowledging error in that way. And I think one of the reasons that it's hard is because if you have a public platform, and especially with so much of our politics and discourse being conducted on social media, which is so toxic and brings out the worst and not the best in people almost by design, anything where you show vulnerability um, is going to be used against you. It's going to be used to attack you. I actually, I remember when you, when you did that, I, I observed it. I said, Hey, look for all you journalists who scorn him 
when is the last time you've issued a correction this unflinching, right? This like just naked in its acknowledgement of error with no attempt to justify it or bullshit or adorn it with caveats. And a lot of people said to me, oh, fuck him. Um, you know, look at the damage he did with disseminating this dangerous slander against the left. You know how dangerous that is. He did it on purpose. No one heard his correction. You put yourself in a position where you're going to be mauled and the incentive is all the time to kind of protect yourself, right? Like to be invulnerable. It's like an, it's an incentive that we learn from the time we're children yeah. is the way you protect yourself in life is by always being the strongest, by conveying strength and not vulnerability. And especially when you're in like the, you know, pit of political and journalistic war, um, doing that is difficult for a good reason. Well, sometimes you have to tap out. You got to take the L. You know, when you fuck up yeah. and that's, yeah. that's one yeah. of those moments. And I think your, uh, great, I mean, I hate to call it work cause it's hardly work, but the greater body of, uh, what you put out there speaks for itself. If someone wants to extract individual things out of context and try to draw a conclusion that that's who you are, or this one individual error, like when you fucked up about the fires, like that's you, that's you, that's you forever. Fuck you. Like, uh, yeah. They're they're playing a game themselves, and you know that's it's a a lack of accepting of nuance, a, a lack of appreciation of uh, that human beings are these weird, flawed creatures that that maintain contradicting ideas all the time, and that have uh, yeah. fucked up thoughts and and express themselves incorrectly and make errors, and to deny that, well, you're playing a game now. You know, or you're be and it's oftentimes people that want to be uh, want to pretend that they're so compassionate. Those are the ones that often are the ones that are the most vicious doing that. And it's kind of weird. It's one of the things that I find about a lot of people that are uh, a part of the ideological left. A lot of them were bullied, and now they've become bullies. But they've become bullies in a non-physical way. They've become bullies in a, a cyber way, and they they're, uh, they love the pile on. They love the gang up. And uh, they become a part of it, and they 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 find yeah. comfort in it. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think though, you know, one of the things that I think we always have to be mindful though of is if you look at mental health data, if you look at things like depression and anxiety disorders and suicide rates, they're sky high, right? Which yeah. is a paradox because the internet was supposed to be this instrument of connectivity. It was supposed to connect us to one another more than we've ever been connected before. And in a lot of ways, it's actually isolated us because now it's kind of kept us in our house, always looking at each other through the screen. It's separated. And then the pandemic, obviously, has made it way worse. And so what you have a lot of times with people who are attacking you online so viciously trying to you know show their moral superiority to you part of it is definitely what you've been saying which is like this desire to feel power and strength because they felt like they lacked it as children and got picked on and so now they're going to get back to the world but part of it is just people are really frustrated and unhappy and angry in life for pretty valid reasons yeah. and a lot of times you just become kind of the vessel for them to expel that it's yes. often more, very very often not about you at all but about them um, and it takes a while to internalize that, not to take that personally, because so often it's really those attacks are just kind of a vehicle for them to compensate for the deprivation that they have in life on so many different levels. I think that's very accurate. And I think Twitter exacerbates that more than any other form of social media. This very Alan Levinovitz had a great way of putting it that um, it's processed information. 
and it's bad for you the same way processed food is bad for you. It's not the way you're supposed to get information. It's not the way you're supposed to communicate. You're supposed to communicate looking at people in front of them. You're supposed to be seeing each other. I mean, that's, that's when we're at our best. Um, and I think that the, the way people communicate on Twitter, it, it, it exacerbates mental illness. It exacerbates anxiety. It exacerbates um, depression and certainly being isolated and being trapped because of the pandemic and being stuck at home exacerbates that as well. But I, just, sure. don't think, I just don't think it's healthy to argue with people that way. And the, the way people were willing to argue on Twitter, they would never communicate like that in person unless they're a fucking psychopath, right? Never, never. never. Joe, do you know, like, I, anytime I sign on to the internet, at any second of any of the day, 3.30 in the morning, two in the afternoon, whenever it is, I can find thousands of people saying the worst possible shit about me like I was worse than Hitler. <laughs> in the 15 years that I've been doing this work, except for one old lady who was like rich and 85 years old and I was walking down the street after a protest yet last year in Brazil at the height of the controversial reporting I was doing and she opened her window and started cursing at me and telling me that I deserve to be imprisoned. Other than that crazy old lady, Every single time somebody on the street has walked up to me because they recognize me from my work, it's been to say, I think your work is awesome. Congratulations on what you've done. It inspires me. I really am a fan of yours. Where are all the people who, you know, are saying I am a white supremacist, that I'm sick and evil, that, yeah. you know, I, yeah. where are they? That you don't, yeah. they're in real life, they don't materialize. Um, and that's why I think that so much of it is just that that thing that people have inside of them that modern society creates through deprivation that at least being anonymous and spewing hatred online enables them to some extent to expel. And also you being a very high-profile journalist, you, you become a target in that you're not even a normal person. Like, it's, it's easy to take free shots at you. Like, it's easy to justify those free shots. Like, he's Glenn Greenwell. Fuck him. That guy. You know what the fuck that guy? Like, they don't even know you, right? I mean, and Yeah, or like, yeah, people read about how much money you make or, you know, what success you've had. And then you just become this, like, pixelated yeah. target and your humanity is 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 drained for them. They don't see you as, that, as a human. They see you as this kind of object. Well, I felt it ramp up considerably. There was a Forbes article, uh, like, a year ago about how much I made. And that ramped it up. And then the Spotify deal ramped it way up. It's like, it's free, of course. free shots. It's just like you're at the, the carnival dunk tank and people want to. Totally. <laughs> but I get it. I understand. Nothing, nothing, is fucking, nothing is fucking free in life. Yeah. Like anything that you get that is a benefit will come with a cost. Yeah. I don't know why the universe works that way, but it absolutely does. Like everything stays in balance. It does. But it's also a challenge for you personally to uh, sort of immunize yourself from that kind of hate and to uh also to to structure your life in a way that you're not bathing in it you're not on twitter reading comments and going back and forth with people like i see some celebrities do and i've had conversations with friends that have like real mental health problems because of that and i've called them up and i go hey man stop doing that stop reading comments like it's it's an addiction it it's is. built to be an addiction i yeah. mean i'm one of those fucking idiots who 
has tried often but failed to avoid that in part because I do like the back and forth, like the vibrancy of exchange. Like one of the things I always liked about new media versus old media is that journalists did have to hear from critics and engage with them as opposed to speaking from the mountaintop. But like any drug that can start off really good and really pleasurable and open up like new experiences for you, it becomes when it becomes a kind of addiction, um, it becomes toxic and, 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 and destructive, which is what it's become for me, but you know, I think the other side of it is the same. Like you can't get attached to the people who hate you, but you also can't seek too much and place too much importance on the admiration either. Yes, yes. Right, because that it, it's kind of just the, the opposite side of the same coin. It's you know just like those people who who are expressing hate toward you don't really hate you because they don't know you. The people who say they love you don't love you, right? Like they right. love your work, and that's a, a big, big difference. Um, and just like. This also sounds banal, but like one of the things that I realized, um, but you know, I never wanted to be a father. My husband and I adopted kids, two kids, two brothers, three years ago. And last year at the height of the Brazil reporting, when the right in Brazil hated me and the left, you know, loved me, they had this huge event, um, which is in defense of my press freedom after Bolsonaro threatened to imprison me. It was like a hall filled with like 6,000 people. People had my, you know, signs with like my name on it. It was just too much. It was like all the press was there. I did a press conference first. And before I went into that event, I was sitting in this kind of room that they put me in with my two kids. My husband had already gone on stage. And my kids, who were 11 and 9 at the time, no, 10 and 8 at the time, picked up like these little pieces of paper and put them in their mouth and found a straw and just started like spitting spitballs at my head. <laughs> so, and then like I would look over at them and they would like just fucking giggle like I was the biggest douchebag on the planet. So like I was in this event that was like historic in nature, like people chanting my name and carrying my signs. And I love, I, I, of course I wanted to fucking strangle my kids because they were like shooting spitballs at my head. But at the same time, I was so grateful for them because they were treating me like, you know, just some like, dumb stupid dad who they were mocking and it just reminded me like all that other stuff is so fake yeah. you know it just it that's not the stuff that matters it doesn't ultimately it's it doesn't really touch who you are that's one of the beautiful things about having comedian friends that they never let you slide they're always fucking with no you. reverence no there's none. no reverence i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> they just fucking torture you we torture each other all the time but it keeps us sane. And, but there's love in it like if one of my friends roasts me and you know they send something to me on, on twitter i just start laughing or on uh, my text message rather i just start laughing like i'm in a text thread with a bunch of comedian friends and it's there it's uh -huh. horrific shit but it's funny right, right, but it's funny you know right, even if it's got yeah. pointed towards you it's it's what we were talking about earlier about these alt-right people that lean towards the attention that they get and it ultimately becomes toxic and i think they recognize the folly in that when when it goes away and they realize like where where are those people and i i lean towards them and maybe express myself in a disingenuous way to try to get their love and now i find myself the victim of that yeah, yeah. You, you mean if you, you mean it's like you know it's like anything. Anything in excess can can destroy you, including success or yeah. admiration or hatred or anything. It's an, it's really important to keep that balance. Well, you look at how many celebrities lose their fucking minds, and what I mean, it's almost commonplace. We expect it. We expect them, people that that gain massive amounts of fame and adulation, to lose their minds. It's normal. Like we don't. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I watched like two biopics in a row by accident, like the Michael Jackson one where they just included his accusers, which believe them or not, like 
Michael Jackson had all kinds of fucked up things in his life and died at 50. And then Freddie Mercury, who had a not entirely identical but still similar trajectory, all the fame, all the money, all the adulation that you could possibly want in the world, and all the like most fucked up pathologies that ultimately killed them as well that came with it. They were completely intertwined. Yeah, my favorite example is Elvis, because Elvis is one of the first. I mean, when, when Elvis became that famous in the 1950s and the 60s, there was really no one like that before him, or very few people that he could mirror. Like, he could say, you know, like, I could call, you know, Dave Chappelle, and, uh, you know, if I've got some weird shit about being famous is fucking with me, I can call him and maybe at least we find common ground and I feel like, okay, I'm not the only one out there that feels weird about all this. Who the fuck was Elvis going to call? You know, Elvis wasn't going to call anybody. Yeah. There was no Elvis before Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. And look how Elvis yeah. wound up, all pilled up and fat and fucked up and confused. And he, he, pretty mu- yeah. he, probably, he pretty much, like, ruined himself, right? Yeah. Like, he took... What made him famous, his hot, his good looks, his like hot body, his like ability to dance, and he just he got fat and bloated <laughs> yeah. and then he killed himself, right? Yeah. Like he was at war with it. Yeah, he was at war with it. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't think it's tenable. I don't think anybody could really manage it at the, that scale. I think when you get to that Michael Jackson level, you get to that Elvis level, it's like there is no normal and there is no one you can mirror. There's no one who's gonna understand what you're going through. You are you are you are recognizable in every square inch of the planet, and it's a, it's madness. You become mad, and you know Elvis is one of the best examples of that. But I think there's a little bit that we can all anybody that's in the public eye can learn from those examples, and you need something that grounds you. You need you got to find something whether it's meditation or yoga or or marathon running. You you got to have something that's a real thing. It's a real struggle. That's a real thing that you have to have energy and focus, and and that can ground you. And it can, you can you can use the tools and the, the 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 mental fortitude that you gather from that, and it can help you survive the bullshit from the other things. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I I I'm yoga meditation that has saved my life on multiple occasions, mm. um, precisely for that reason that that you you know even even independent of like whether you're well-known or, or, or successful in your career, I think like you need some escape from just materiality, yeah. right? From like the constant pressures and, and, and this like one dimensional form of evaluating yourself, like that spirituality that you can't get if you don't have religion as most of us these days don't in the West. Um, you don't need religion, but you do need spirituality of some kind, like just some purpose, some connection to something beyond just your immediate material desires. And I do think if you deny yourself that, um, you're going to get off kilter at best. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think that's because we crave purpose and making money or being famous or doing well in your career isn't purpose. Um, it's something that can enable purpose. It's something that can help you fulfill your purpose but it in itself is not purpose and if that's all you're pursuing to the exclusion of other things or all that's defining you yeah i don't think you're going to end up very good yeah because there's something that comes with too much success there's a lack of lessons you know there's too there's too much adulation and love and too many people are holding doors open for you and telling you how great you are and you don't you don't learn from those lessons there's no lessons there the the, the lessons come from failure and from struggle and uh, without that, you, you, it's very hard to define yourself. I, I couldn't agree more. Glenn, I'm glad we did this. Next time I'm going to be in that cool little red studio they built for you there. All right, man. Beautiful. Well, I, I hope right, that's soon. Time. 
Thank you very much. I really appreciate you. Great talking to you, Joe. I really appreciate it too. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.